Welcome back to the Taiku Podcast. We are finally here to talk about the top movies of 2015. It's only March, so we're still good, right? Well, yeah. Joining me from last year's panel is Corey. Hello. Chris. Hi. And Kyle. Hello. Alright, so we're just going to count down. Our top five movies of the year. Let's just get the ball rolling. Rolling, Kyle, you're number five. All right, number five. <sighs> I just want to say that this was a big year. This was, I mean, for as much, as many bad things as we got, we got good things. So, you know, I'm going to start this off right, guys. Number five, Paul Blart, Mall Cop 2. Ugh, I didn't invite Dylan for a reason. Yeah, I'm just playing. Nobody's get off, get off Kyle. <laughs> yeah, nobody's <laughs> no, go nobody's away. <laughs> it's not even worthy of the joke. I had to get the joke out of the system, guys. I didn't want to show up later. Like a top that, as like a number real one. Number five will be minions, right? <laughs> oh, I am not Tony. Anyway, pixels. So number five. You know, I'm gonna say that out of all the films I saw this year. I'm going over my list, like, because remember, this isn't like a full list, but you know what? I I really love Creed. I heard that was really really good. Creed was really really good. I I kind of went into it. I've been hearing some good things, and you know, like you know, the Rocky films have had a rough history as far as in you know, for every bad one, there's like four bad ones. You know, every good one, there's like four bad ones. And there's there are... only six. Yeah, well, that's how it goes. <laughs> uh... So it's like, ah, uh, I literally wasn't looking too forward to it and I went in and I, I was really blown away and the audience I was with should also be noted they were blown away as well I was in my local terrible theater and generally they're not very respectful and just you know like they'll be talking during the movies and things and they're not really responsive but this film it was so popular uh, it had such an effect on the crowd that everybody stayed throughout the entire credits it received a, like a standing ovation at the end and everyone was just very involved in it. And uh, for reasons, which I'll go over just for a short bit, I mean, it's just a huge hit. I mean, the way that it takes the Rocky story and then it recontextualizes it for both a new generation and for a, um, you know, and for like the black community in general. I mean, that that's huge. I mean, we went from being centered on, you know, an Italian to being about like a guy who, you know, like lost his father, you know, like is really kind of lost his, you know, and being adopted has kind of has a lost identity and dealing with moving to a new town where he's not exactly, you know, hot shit or anything and having to deal with um, the legacy of, you know, his father and himself and where he fits in that and Rocky's legacy as well, where he fits in. It's just, it was just great. <laughs> like, kind of from top to bottom, and that was really surprising to me. And I came out thinking, like, it was a good. This is weird too, because Rocky movies are generally not very good boxing movies, and this was like a great boxing movie. I mean, it's it's fierce at times. You just go, oh, like visibly recoil, because it's not just like you know the awful. What is it? The one with Mr. T? Is that Rocky three or two? I think it's three. I think that's four. No, four is the Russian, so yeah, it would four be three. Four is Dolph Lundgren, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, so Mr. T is number three. 
Like I, I've seen, I, I saw actually, um, ironically, just for I wasn't even trying to watch it, but I saw Rocky three, like right before I saw Creed, like a week or two before, and I'd never seen it before. And God, Rocky three is just kind of awful. Like they, like Mr. T is the most artificially like enhanced villain ever. He just kind of like shows up out of nowhere, like beats Rocky in a second. It reminds me of like an old school, like comic book. Approach how they they have like Wolverine and then they just bring in some new villain and beat up Wolverine. So everyone's like, oh my god, this guy's hot shit. And then like they, he turns out to be like a one off villain that nobody cares about. But I hey, pity you, Kyle. Mr. T is awesome. <laughs> He's not awesome in Rocky Three though. <laughs> Regardless of what you feel about Mr. T as like a, an actor or person in Rocky Three, that is just a big bowl of no. So. I mean, but the, the other great thing about the film that should be noted is the fact that it takes all of the history of the Rocky series, like, even the bad stuff, like, especially the bad stuff, and then it's able to make something, like, worthwhile and like, something that you can get invested in out of that. Like, it almost makes you nostalgic for even, like, the bad stuff, the way that it's able to use it um, within its story, which is not something that you can normally say. Usually, like, if something's bad, people have to kind of ignore it continuity-wise, but... Like, Rocky embraces all of it, like, the, the goofy stuff and the bad stuff and all of it, and then they're able to make some something new out of it that's fresh. But it's also very much identifiably Rocky. And one of my top films of the year. One might say it's number five. Well, you could. talk about it in, like, a podcast segment. <laughs> No, I don't know if I don't know if I'm ever gonna get around to seeing it. I've I've never actually sat through any of the Rocky movies. I'm not a big Stallone fan. I, I remember I was watching parts of Rocky two over at a buddy's house, and then it, it dawned on me. I was like, that's why people love the Rocky movies because Stallone isn't acting. He's just this stupid. Um, <laughs> but you know, I know that number one and number six are very very uh, highly appreciated. Uh, I like Michael B. Jordan, um, who's yeah. in Creed, but you know I'm not a big fan of a lot of uh, you know even though this is a sports podcast and I'm on here so damn much talking about cartoon sports, I'm not a big fan of American live action movies that center on sports that aren't comedies. Uh, they just don't really do it for me. Um, but I have heard that Creed is just absolutely stellar, so it's at least I'm not disdainfully ignoring it. <laughs> Fair enough, and I, I understand that. I see. I appreciate what it does for Stallone because I, like, you know, some actors get like a big break, like to work with like a great director or something, or you know, like a film will just take off, like, but because of someone else's, right? Like they'll be like they'll be hired, and then like an actor will take off. But I, I appreciate Stallone and Rocky and that, like, you know, Stallone's not a good actor, right? Like he kind of had didn't have a lot going on. He never had his big break. So he's like, screw it. Like I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to write something for myself. Like I'm going to like make my own big break. So it it's it, the story of Rocky and the story of Stallone making Rocky it actually mirrored each other very well and that's very unique and it's also incredibly odd. But hey, you're right. Like he's not stupid. Playing himself. I just got a slow brain. Like, right, like that's who he is. Like he is, like he is Rocky. Like it's, but that's kind of cool in its own way. I don't know, like, you know, like, you know, that you, someone can do that. You know, <laughs> yeah. So I, I appreciate it, but I do understand the sentiment about 
you know, sports films in general. They generally do not work. That's why I was surprised that this was a good boxing movie. Like, on top of being a good Rocky movie. So that's all I have to say about it, though. Fuck you, dog. All right. Number five, <laughs> Creed. Chris, you're number five. I don't want to talk about my number five right now. Why? Because I want to make a quick aside and cheat. There, There is a movie. I, I wanted to put it on my top five, and I debated for, like, a month. Um, but I ended up not putting it in my top five only due to a technicality. But this movie is so amazing. It needs to be spoken, and people need to be aware and need to watch it. Um, the movie basically came out in 2015, Festival Circuit, U.S. Uh, limited Theatrical, VOD. The Blu-ray came out this year, but the technicality is it originally was released in Japan in t- 2014. The World of Kaneko. This movie is amazing. It's, it's a Japanese film, um, but it's basically everything you expect from the really gritty, psychological, fucked-up Korean films with on top of it, the insanity of Japanese films. It's by the director of Kamikaze Girls, which if any of anyone has ever seen Kamikaze Girls is an awesome, psychotic, just crazy movie. The world of Kaneko is fucking madness. It is the most impacting. It would be like probably my number two and I'd fight myself for it to be my number one. But because it came out in 2014, I kept it off the list. But people need to know, and they need to see the world of Conoco, and I'll keep it short. So yes, hi, my number five. Um, how are you? <laughs> um, I actually didn't see a whole lot of movies this year. Um, there was nothing that was really pulling me to go to the theater. And in preparation for this, instead of seeking out movies from 2015, I just left the movies that I had seen alone because I did want definitely want to talk about three of them. Um, that probably would have been kicked off the list if I did see uh, more of the more highly acclaimed films of the year. Um, so my number five is probably the most divisive film of 2015. People either hated it with the utmost intensity or loved it. Um, there, I didn't see a whole lot of commentary that was in between. And that's Ryan Gosling's directorial debut, Lost River. I loved this movie. Um, so the reason why a lot of people, why it's so divisive is basically Ryan Gosling is, you know, it's his first time in the director's chair. And what he's doing is he's taking movies that influence him and directly um, projecting that onto the screen with his own original story. There's so many movies like and Tarantino is the biggest one where all they do is homage and pastiche. But for some reason, people like violently um, turned against Lost River for the very same thing that they love other movies. Um, so Lost River, it's it's a confusing movie because it's. It's not a very linear narrative, and it's uh, kind of psychotic. But it's basically about Detroit, Michigan, run-down, decrepit, the economy, the government, everything has failed them. Um, and it centers in on one family who lives in a house that is literally falling apart, and they're about to get kicked out of their house. And on the surface, it's just about them, you know, the different members of this family, trying their best to survive and attempt to prosper in this complete rundown world. 
um, what it does that's unique is it builds in this bizarre mythology about a city that had been flooded and is underwater. That's the, the lost river that the title references. And in the midst of that, you have Doctor Who, uh, Matt Smith playing Bully, who is a gangster who runs through uh, the rundown areas of Detroit, claims them his own, murders people who just venture in. And it's an absolutely mesmerizing experience. It's it's a David Lynch film with the use of neon color um, from Nicholas Winding Refn, who Gosling worked on, uh, worked with on Drive and Only God Forgives, which are also excellent movies. Um, <clears throat> yeah, Lost River. I don't think enough people have seen it, and if you were to look it up online, that'd be very divisive. But it is definitely one of my favorite movies of the year for the use of uh, Lynchian iconography, uh, reference neon lit style the performances are tremendous uh Sousie rowan i cannot pronounce her name correctly it's, off the top oh, of my head it's sersha sersha um, she is she is incredible uh matt smith who is my least favorite doctor who is actually really really fucking menacing he is a terrific villain um christina hendrickson plays the mom and her entire plight is she ends up going to work at a brothel as a hostess, but not a prostitute. And there's all this crazy stuff with like a hyperbolic cryogenic chamber where it, it's, it's fucking crazy. Um, the, all the performances are really good and it was really, uh, affecting for me. Um, the metaphors and the allegories towards, you know, Detroit in real life and how the, you know, the country is going down the path and we're leaving the we're leaving people behind. And these people are living in abject poverty, stealing, uh, rummaging through uh, rundown buildings for scrap material to try to sell. Everything about this movie was incredibly well done. And the fact that it is presented in this very Lynchian style um, basically was you know, in big neon lights in the sky saying, Chris, this movie is for you. Um, <laughs> the, the mythology, the Lost River, everything is just really terrific. And I really think that more people should watch the movie. And just who cares if it is inspired by Lynch, if it is inspired by Refn. And none of that matters because you watch movies all the time that wear these, um, wear these influences on their sleeve. Uh, the movie I mentioned a little bit ago, The World of Conoco, is rife with pastiche and homage. Um, and, you know, you guys go out watching The Guest and You're Next and any Tarantino film and about 60% of the movies that come out, they all wear their influences on their sleeve. And this is this is no different. It doesn't suffer. It's not unoriginal. It intelligently uses those influences to craft something that is wholly Gosling's uh, vision. And I really appreciated. I really appreciated that. Great movie, Lost River. Cool, Lost River, number five. I have Lost River on Blu-ray. I haven't watched it yet. Yeah, yeah. I waited for the Blu-ray myself. I was dying like the two months that it was on VOD before the Blu-ray came out. And I was like, no, <laughs> the Blu-ray is like eleven dollars. I'm just gonna wait. <laughs> I also just ordered World of Conoco. 
pimping. Corey's got World of Conoco with his Draft House membership. He needs to sit down and watch that. I do. I will eventually. And, oh, and Lost River has an amazing soundtrack. You're going to love it, Corey. <laughs> uh, Corey with a C. Yeah, it's your type of soundtrack. But uh, when you were still on Twitter, when uh, this movie was coming out, I posted some of that to you. The, the same guy who did uh, some of the right, instrumental yeah, tracks for Drive. Yeah. All right, cool. Okay. Lost River, number five. Corey, you're number <laughs> I hope five. Both of Conoco is the right. Amazon says Region B, but the image says Region Region A. If it's from Draft House, which you should see somewhere on the cover, it says Draft it House. It does Bell. say Draft House. Well, if You're it's good wrong, then. I'll just return it. No, nah, it'll be good. <clears throat> All right. That movie looks cool. Uh, I didn't really know what to put for four and five, so I just came up with something. Old guys. Uh, so for five, uh, I picked Room. Very nice. I heard very good things about that one. It's a very good um, movie. It's very good. Uh, it's about uh, a girl named Joy, and she gets kidnapped when she's like 17, I think. Yeah, I think so. And this guy locks her in his shed and uh, keeps her there for seven years. Um, and I get, I guess spoilers, but yeah, seven years. So eventually, she escapes. Um, and while she's with. The while she's in captivity, I guess um, this guy, old Nick, rapes her like all the time, and eventually she has a son. And so the movie is pretty much about Joy and her son Jack. And uh, Joy is played by Brie Larson, and Jack. He's played by Jacob Trimblay? Trimbley? That is Trimble. Trimble? I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, Freaking names. Uh, The movie's based on a book, and then the book, I think, is inspired by true, true events that happened in Germany, and then, like, other kidnapping type, uh, things. Yeah, so the true story was the dad kidnapped the daughter and put her in a secret room in the basement, and the daughter had, like, five kids from the dad. Gross. Yep. It's, it's fucking terrible. <laughs> um, see, I didn't really... So I didn't know, like... So they get out of the room... Right, and I didn't really know like how much the movie was in room and how much was outside of room. Um, but I, uh, so it was actually pretty short. Uh, in room, 
so I was pleasantly surprised that they tried. I don't think they did a perfect job with it. And obviously, I've never been locked in a room for seven years. Uh, but I feel like they didn't do as good a job as they could with, like, the psychological damage of being trapped in a room for seven years and raped almost every night. Um, but I like that it's doing this. Um, not, like, in a, like, morbid curiosity, but, like, in a, I don't know, it's, I don't know, it's just... It's a story that I liked seeing told, I guess, in a film. That's fair. Um, so yeah, the, the, I'm not real familiar with like the, the, um, like how well child actors are. Like what makes a good child actor? Who's a good child actor or whatever? But Jacob, who plays Jack, was incredible. Uh, he really sold the part. Uh, and there's a moment in the film where, I guess spoilers, Jack escapes uh, by playing dead. And he's... What? Go ahead, go ahead. He, did you just like verbally I'm like? I'm not to hear. I haven't seen it yet. Oh, oh. well, so, I wanted. I'm talking. I'm I, wanted to I thought talk you about were like favorite... like verbally rolling your eyes, like oh. <laughs> I want to talk I'm about talking. my favorite part I can't hear of the anything movie. You say. Stop listening, Kyle. <laughs> then take your headphones <laughs> off. I want to talk about my favorite part. We'll chat you when you can come back. <laughs> I'm okay. Spoilers don't ruin shit. Go ahead, Corey. <laughs> All right, so. To, to escape, um, Joy has Jack play dead, and uh, she wraps him up in a rug, and uh, and tells and you know old Nick has to take him out of room and like go bury him somewhere, and Joy's like do not she's she's like doesn't want him to open the carpet, so she's like acting as like. Like, he's actually dead, but, like, it would be incredibly disrespectful for someone like old Nick uh, to, like, look upon his corpse. So she, like, pleads to not look at him. So he takes him out of room in this, wrapped up in this rug, and puts him in the bed of his truck. And then they're driving uh, somewhere, I guess, to bury him. And Jack, uh, unrolls out of the carpet and he's, uh, his mom told him to jump out when the truck stops. So as the truck's going and he's out of the carpet, he's just like looking up at the sky and this is his first time like ever seeing anything outside of room. Uh, and it's just a mesmerizing scene. Of like the the like the the power lines going by and the blue sky and everything is incredible. That uh, sounds like a really powerful scene if, yeah. if they do a good job with the acting. Yeah, oh, it, is, it is so amazing. 
Um, and it just, it just really sold this like wonder for Jack. Cause like while he's in room, um, all he, his only knowledge of the outside world is TV and he doesn't believe anything outside of room exists. And his mom like tries real hard to be like, no, there's a world outside of room, the TV, like things don't live inside the TV. The TV is just, you know, a lens looking upon the world. Well, she also uh, said before that there is nothing outside of room. Right. But at some point she has to try to explain to him. So they can get out. Uh, yeah. And so then when he gets out, it's just like this whole new thing that he couldn't even imagine. Uh, it's pretty and at, yeah. And at one point it's like so massive and like magnificent. He's, he just can't handle it. And he actually wants to go back to the safety of room. Uh, it's just, it's really amazing. Nice. I guess Kyle can come back now. <laughs> Sorry, I'm back. Yeah. I, I could hear enough that I was able to come back a minute ago. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. So it. Um. Yeah. It's just. It's a really good movie. Yeah. Awesome. It just came out on Blu-ray, I think. So. It is out there. Yeah, all these movies, they wait until after the Academy Awards. At least a lot of them do. Because they want to be able to put on the box that it was nominated, or and hopefully won a few of them. Well, Room got one. Or two. I don't know. It got an actress. Yeah, at least one. And didn't the... Uh, was, I don't know. Was the, did the boy win? Or no? I don't think he was nominated. Uh, she was just He was just there for solidarity. Yep. Cool. Except there's that uh, gif or vine or whatever of the boy seeing a clip of Star Wars and being super excited because it's like horrible. Yeah. I was watching. Anyway. Number five. Yes. Room. Uh, on to mine number five, which I don't know what to put there. Because there are a lot of movies that are pretty good. Well, I mean, they're amazing because they're number five, but I don't know which one to pick. Pick whichever one you liked. Like, all right, dude, here's what I would do it. The one whichever you're like, all right, four movies were better than this. Pick that one. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. Roll dice. <laughs> Which one do you want to talk about? Which one do you feel like telling the world about, Corey? That's that's how I roll. <laughs> it's true. Um, all right. Uh, other considerations for this number five were Room, Spy, and... Train wreck, but I will go with uh, Adam McKay's The Big Short, which is about the 2008 housing crisis. Um, and this is seemingly not going to be a prescient movie for the rest of history, but I think it will be very important, or at least uh, relevant. Good to, yeah, relevant. Good to watch for. 
historical oh, knowledge. It's a comedy, right? It's by the guy who did Anchorman and Step Brothers and stuff, yeah, right? it's definitely a comedy. <laughs> and this is his first movie without Will Ferrell as a main character, much less an actor in the film. So this movie is probably, like, incredibly good. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm not a big fan of Will Ferrell at all. Um, but it, this has Christian Bale, uh, Ryan Gosling, Rag Pig, and Steve Carell playing key players who figured out this housing crisis was going to happen and started buying up uh, the whatever thingies. Essentially, they bet against the American housing market. Right, which is literally never happening, but then, of course, it happened. Um, and there's been a lot of complaints about, you know, Oscar's so white and all this, all this stuff. And the big short came up in one of the conversations, and it's like, well, no, we can't, we can't put any uh, actors who are of color in this film because it is literally old white people that fucked up everything. Um, and I think that's like something really good to point out in this movie because it's, white white people are the worst. True. <laughs> but no, yeah, worst. But they're the ones that ruined the housing market. They're the ones that kept selling subprime, or not selling, but giving subprime mortgage loans to uh, people who could not afford them and being like, well, in five years, you can just refinance, but then it's five years, it's 2008, and everyone loses up their houses. Houses, plural, is part of the problem. The real thing that I think that's interesting about the film, because uh, I, I saw it as well, it's it's not even that. Just the way that it indicts like the entire, like it, it really is an indictment against, in a way, uh, capitalism. Yep. Because all the like they go they go over systematically like because it, it's so obvious in the beginning. Everyone who's like betting against it, they're just like this can't even be real, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like this is too obvious. Like other people have to have seen it by now. Like obviously we're being they hear about it and they're like, we're obviously being like taken in, right? Like someone's trying to get money out of us or something. And they keep on looking into it and they realize that it's not so much like any, like this isn't intentional on anybody's part. Everybody's just like lying to themselves and everyone's just like, oh no, like it's always been good. Like it'll always be good, right? Yep. And then they, the more they get into it, the more they actually see that like the lower end, sure, that's true. But the people at the top end, not only that, like, they don't know about it. It's like they know about it, but they don't care because there's there's not going to be any consequences against them. And all of the protection, the protective measures that were supposed to be in place that would have prevented this are actually like they're not working because of the free market. Like it's it's pretty. There's one moment when they actually go to the rating agencies who are supposed to like they're the, they're the governmental agencies. They're, they're these uh, these agencies. We're supposed to tell uh, we're supposed to rate the stock whether it's good stock or bad stock, but they're like, in order to get business, because the, the banks want goods, they want to get a good rating and because then they can buy these loans and they can earn more money. So these rating agencies, they actually have been giving everything good ratings because that way, A, they'll keep on getting business and they'll keep on getting more business. 
And B, because if they don't do it, then the banks will just turn to another company that will actually give them a good rating. Right. Because for some reason, if you put a bunch of shitty loans together into a uh, giant pile of shitty loan poo, it becomes a one good loan, and they get a good rating. Yeah. And so there's a point where they just, like, someone reveals it, and the, the guy who, you know, um, at this point, uh, who was it? That's uh, Steve Carell. He literally just goes like, are, like, it's not even just like, even like, are you fucking kidding me? It's just like a complete defeat. He just hears that, and he goes, what? <laughs> And, and you, and you know, like, it's, it's so backwards. And then at the very end, you know, you, they talk about there's this, like, it's like a fake out. They go, yep. And after this, like, all, you know, this was all, uh, you know, everyone cleaned up their act and they voted against it and there was reform and everything. And they go, just kidding. Here's what actually happened. All yeah. these people, it's not even that they didn't say, like, they just, uh, they realized that they had enough power and influence that they could just get their lobbies in there and then they would just get away with this and they caused all this damage. And then, they were able to walk away and all of the, uh, you know, the people who were hurt from this were the, like the average person. But the other thing thing about the film is that it indicts the average person too, because they should have been like looking into this and doing like research, but they were all like willing to be fleeced essentially. Like it's, it's an indictment against everybody, but it's an indictment against some groups more than others. Yep. This shit be fucked the movie. Yeah. You, you leave and you're pissed. Like, I got home. I watched it on New Year's, which is probably like, the best way I said. I'm like, yep, starting off this year, disappointed in humanity. And I got home, and I was just like, I literally, like, I, the whole ride home, I was just, like, kind of angry. And then I got home, and it just hit me, and I was I was pissed for days. I hate everything so much. <laughs> that was Kyle for, like, the first three days of 2016. Yeah, I mean, there's this really poignant scene. Um, with Brad Pitt and these two people that he's uh, kind of forcibly having took under his wing. And they stumble upon this thing that's happening. They buy up some of these loans, and they they finally say, oh my god, we're going to be millionaires, and Brad Pitt is like, you're fucking celebrating over thousands of people losing their homes and you getting money off. This is why I fucking hate capitalism. And he just walks out. Oh, hey, it stars Ryan Gosling. Why haven't I watched this yet? That's my boy. I said it stars Ryan Gosling at the beginning. Hey, leave me alone. <laughs> I, had a work e- I had a work email I had to reply to. Yeah, but this is really good. It's very funny. Um, it is. <laughs> yeah, like, this is, was way funnier than I thought it was going to be, and I came into it not expecting to really like it, but more appreciating it, but I guess now it's number five. All right. Big short. Big stuff. Uh, on to number fours. Whoa! And it's less than an hour. This is amazing. I know. Chris, number four. Oh. Okay. <laughs> um, well, it wouldn't be my, my top list of the year if I didn't talk about a movie that came out in February... And say, yeah, it is still one of the best movies of the year, and it's the best horror movie of last year. It follows. Um, anyone who says it follows isn't the best horror movie of 2015 is ridiculous and psychotic. Um, it's a basically an independent low budget film starring, God, what is her name? The girl from The Guest. And 
basically the movie is a giant metaphor in all of its facets for um, death and STDs and sexual repression brought into uh, the modern era. Um, literally, the movie is about a sexually transmitted demon, an STD. Um, <laughs> I where, didn't even think of that. <laughs> um, so w- this this demon is the the titular it. Um, if you are possessed by this demon, it follows you. It continues to follow you, it and follows. until it follows. And, you know, if it eventually catches up to you, it will kill you. Um, you know, AIDS is probably, you know, a lot of people when the movie came out were like, it's not about STDs. It's about death and fear of death and running from death. I'm like, do you people not realize that people with STDs, you know, like AIDS fucking deal with that shit all the time? Step off. Um, <laughs> you know, and when it finally catches up to you, it kills you. The only way to postpone your own in- inevitable demise is to have sex with somebody else. And the demon transfers to that person. Uh, the catch is if, if the demon kills the person you slept with, then it, com- it comes back to you. It, it continues to pass on through the line. So nobody is ever free of their sins. Um, nobody is ever free of the demon. It's always going to be something that they carry with them throughout their entire life. Excuse me, Micah Monroe, that's the name of the lead girl. Um, basically, she gets tricked at the beginning of the movie by, you know, this guy she's seeing who he knows about the demon and he's intentionally sleeping with her to get it off of his back. Um, so the, the movie follows uh, Micah, Micah Monroe's character as she is doing her best with the, the help of her friends to avoid the demon. And she does, you know... She has this guy that she um, she really likes, and then there's another guy who's you know been her childhood friend who really likes her, and everybody's like, hey, sleep with me, you know, and I'll help keep it away from you. And she's trying to take the higher road, um, and it's just a fucking terrifying movie. Um, the the soundtrack is by uh, Disasterpiece. Disasterpiece, which is a, an amazing soundtrack. It's basically John Carpenter coming out of retirement level of amazing, and it sounds just like a John Carpenter score. Um, the incredible thing for me is Disasterpiece was an incredibly shitty chiptune band, um, and this soundtrack sounds absolutely nothing like the garbage that they've been putting out um, <laughs> <laughs> for hey, years. The music, the music in Fez is pretty good. <laughs> Um, and and it just it's a very haunting score that permeates through the screen and I I would be lying if I didn't say that the score itself was a huge attribute to the film it basically makes the movie Um, Michael Monroe is terrific the other cast members are also extremely terrific it it brings you back down to the classical horror of teenage focused but they're not, you know, the incredibly stupid teenagers. They are, but they aren't. Um, the time period that the film takes place in, you have no idea when that is. It looks like the 80s. It feels like the 80s. But one of the characters has this futuristic, like it doesn't even exist in our world, compact, magical supercomputer that's a, literally like a makeup compact. Um, so so you, 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 never, you never quite get a feel for the sense of place 
And so you're, you're, you are yourself are very disoriented um, with the characters and the, the creature it's it's not a fast mover. It's one of the it, it, the demon just slowly walks towards you, and it never stops. So you get in your car and you drive a hundred miles an hour, and an hour later you're a hundred miles away. It's still going to be walking towards you at the same pace. So it's not like Freddy or Jason where it just jumps out. And so all the characters are constantly letting themselves feel like they're safe. You know, I did this and now I'm safe. Oh shit. You know, a couple days later, the demon finally caught up with you. The imagery, the cinematography, this movie is gorgeous to look at. And yeah, I, the best horror movie of 2015 fucking see this thing. It is so, so good. And of course me sitting here hyping it up, is exactly the backlash that happened when the movie came out. Everybody said, oh, it's overhyped. It's not really that good. Well, that's just because you're ridiculous. Um, I mean, horror fans overhyped it, not film guys. Film guys liked it, and then horror fans were like, no, man, it's not as scary as a typical horror film. Exactly. It's it's not like modern horror movies. Everybody that likes horror movies that go to the theaters, like the mass people, they're they're all like they're pretty much casual horror fans. They go to see the latest jump scare fest, you know, whatever like Saw eighteen million or whatever. Yeah. Th- this movie is does not feel like a modern horror movie in any sense of the word. It doesn't use the same scare tactics. Um, there there's a scene in my theater. A dude actually got up and walked out during the scene, and I thought it was one of the best scares in the fucking movie. The camera just slow pans, like no jump scare, no thunderous music or anything. The camera just slow pans to the right and focuses on a house. And on the top of the house is the demon who now the the demon um, changes shape. So it doesn't look like a demon. It just looks like people, like normal people. So walking through the crowd, you can't tell who the demon is. And there's a naked dude with his balls and cock just flapping in the wind, standing on top of the house. Like, holy fucking shit. That was amazing. And right when that that happened, dude was like, fuck this. It got up and walked off. I was like, good riddance. We don't need you, you sack. And and we're seeing the same thing with uh, this year with The Witch. I went and saw The Witch last weekend. Holy shit, The Witch is amazing. Like 15 people walked out of that movie. At the very end, one dude was like, that was bullshit. It's like, we don't need you. I mean, these people are making extremely good competent movies that also happen to be horror movies. This is, you know, as my biggest, you know, thing as a horror fan is no horror movies are actually good. They can have social commentary. They can be, you know, of quote unquote merit, you know, as the pompous, you know, film people tend to say. And and these are these types of horror movies that are coming out and people that are going to see them in the theaters, they just want the jump scares. They want to, you know, throw their popcorn because something scared them. They're not looking for cinema and it follows is in that vein, just like the Babadook the year before, Starry Eyes for me, The Witch this year. It follows. That was it for 2014. And that movie came out in February. Even if I did see more movies, I would still be putting It Follows on my top five. That shit was awesome. Fuck yeah. It's really good. I got that vinyl that Corey, Corey sent me the link to. Yeah. 
<laughs> he was like, dude, they got a vinyl of the soundtrack. I was like, oh my god, that looks really cool. Yeah. <laughs> good movie, man. Okay, I'm done. All right. It follows <laughs> number four. Uh, Corey, you're number four. All right. Uh, my number four is Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. Oh, I wanted to see that. Me too. So good. So good. Um, is this about your dying girl? The, the, the title pretty much says it all. It's about Greg, who is the titular me. Uh, Greg's quote-unquote co-worker. He doesn't call him his friend. He calls him his co-worker, <laughs> Earl. And then... Uh, and then the dying girl, which is uh, uh, Rachel. Um, so it's uh, it's like a comedy drama high school thing, um, and it's really funny. It's really smart. Um, uh, Rachel's played by Olivia Cook, which I've seen her in The Signal. Um, I didn't really, uh, I wasn't really familiar with Thomas Mann or RJ Seiler. Um, but Nick Offerman is in it. Uh, he plays Greg's dad and is pretty amazing. And then, uh, John Bernthal plays, uh, their teacher. I, I was, you said Olivia Cook. I was like, that name sounds familiar. And I, it's the girl from Bates Motel. There you go. That works. I like her. She's good. Though she was in that god awful Ouija movie. But less less spoken about that. <laughs> um, the music is by Brian Eno. Uh, he even uses some of his old uh, music in oh, yeah. in the film. I think he has some new stuff in there too. Uh, yeah, it's it's really good. Um, it's mostly about Greg and like, cause it starts off with, um, Rachel gets, uh, leukemia and Greg's parents. So Greg kind of doesn't really do things for himself. He has to have other people tell him what to do. Um, so his parents tell him to go over to Rachel's house and like hang out with her because she just found out she has leukemia. And, uh, yeah, the film's mostly about, um, him and Earl. And, uh, they used to make, like, short films. And they were, like, parodies on, like, actual films. Um, and so eventually, uh, they go to make a film for Rachel to help, you know, cheer her up. I'm going to cry like a bitch whenever I see this movie. <laughs> Man, and, uh, Fault in My Stars messed me up. This will mess me up even more. The ending didn't really do it for me, but uh, it was still good. Um, the cinematography is really good. There's some, like weird like when they're in the high school like the the way the hallway is split and you can like see down like 
both hallways. It's like a triangle. It's really weird. And then there's like moments where like the whole like frame is like turned vertical. And there's a part where they take some drugs and it's really funny. It's also based on a book. Looking this up on IMDb, directed by the guy who brought you the remake of The Town That Dreaded Sundown, which I still haven't seen. It's a horror movie for those that don't know. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> I can tell from the title. Alfonso Gomez Rayhon. Look, the original Town That Dreaded Sundown I thought was god-awful, so that remake has to be at least better than that. <laughs> Will it? Yeah, I, I thought the first, the original was awful. Anyway, me, Earl, dying girl. Keep talking, Corey. Um, you should just watch it. Okay, it's good for me, Corey. <laughs> All right. It's funny. There's jokes. <laughs> it sounds incredibly sad. Greg makes a. Jo- Greg is in Rachel's room and he makes a joke about how he had a pillow. I forget the name. Greg like named one of his pillows and was like in a relationship with his pillow. It was a joke though. He wasn't actually in a relationship with his pillow. Allegedly not in a relationship with his pillow. You you related very very closely, didn't you, Corey? It, <laughs> <laughs> it was it was pretty funny. <laughs> to both of you, Corey's. And the pillow comes up again later in the movie. Pillows are very comforting in these nights alone. Too bad you got vanilla waifu. I'm just imagining. And in, in 30 Rock, is your favorite character James Franco? James Franco is great. In 30 Rock? Rock? Do, do you not? At, uh, at one point, he brings in a doggy makita, like a, a body pillow. Oh, he's <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. Kimiko. No, I'm much more of a fan of James Franco from Freaks and Geeks. When he plays D and D. Alright, number four. <laughs> the Earl and Dying Girl. Moving on to my number four. Wait, unless you had something else. You should watch it, just buy it. Just buy it. Alright. <laughs> buy it. Alright, Agulai number four. Uh is a documentary film named Twinsters. It was about uh these two uh, Korean adoptees, one of which was adopted to Paris and one of which was adopted to New York. And that was an accident on the part of the adoption agencies. Um, but they find each other later, like I think two years ago now, in real time. Um, because one of them's an actor and she's kicking a guy's balls on YouTube and some silly video. And the people in Paris saw it, and they were like, are you kicking a guy's balls on YouTube in Los Angeles? Um, Obviously the answer is no. <laughs> yes, the answer is no. But they they come together, they meet each other, and they realize the familial bonds between sisters never break. Um, and I assume this is on no one else's a radar or B top list, but as a Korean American adoptee, it hit home for me because I don't really know if I have family out there, and I don't actually care that that much because I'm completely content with the family that I have now. Um, but 
to be able to experience that in a movie form, in a documentary form, was very touching and very, very eye-opening. So, sounds nice. Sounds what was it called? Twinsters. It's on Netflix if you got it. It's the a portmanteau of twins and sisters, you see? Oh, okay. Uh, anyway, yeah, Twinsters. Very good. Very entertaining documentary. Um, on to the next one. Kyle, here number four. All right, you know, uh, it, I, I really like what Chris said about, you know, let's talk about films that maybe, you know, like, these are some of my favorite films. I have a list of, like, all the films I could have had, but I haven't had, I don't think anyone else is going to mention it, so I want to bring it up, but I saw this in theaters. I, I made a point of going to see it in IMAX, or at least what counts for IMAX over here in Maryland. Uh, I saw, I loved Prince, uh, Crimson Peak, Guillermo del Toro's. Man, and, I need to see that bitch. I still haven't seen it. And, uh. it. and I do want to talk about it because it was not marketed correctly. Essentially, the marketing team tried to market it like a horror film, and it's not that. It's it's gothic romance, which is what Guillermo kept on talking about on Twitter. He's like, this isn't a horror film, just letting you know. But all the ads made it seem like it was going to be a horror film. Well, it's still got blood and ghosts. I mean, it still qualifies. It's this gothic romance. That's all like, that's part of another genre. I it's mean, not a horror film. The cover like, of it makes it look like it's one of those terrible horror jump films. It's not a horror film at all. And because of that, it did not do terribly well in theaters. Like, that's totally on the marketing team. Like, you, you can't say, you can't say that, you know, market something is one thing and then it's not that thing. That's just, that's not a way to success. Well, maybe they thought if they marketed it as gothic romance, it would have made even less money. <laughs> if you looked at its box office, that's pretty much impossible. <laughs> like, it it's almost impossible. $19 million. Well, they probably have data we don't have, so. Oh, right, right. Because you know that marketing teams are always so brilliant. Now, uh, instead of, like, the audience that should have seen it, like, a bunch of teens saw it, and they were like, this isn't horror. I'm not going to watch it. And then no one went to see it. As opposed to, like, the people who would actually like this, which are many, many people. Anyway, so it's about this girl who, you know, she's a bit of kind of, like, maybe first-wave feminist, I guess, in a, kind of, like, in America. And she's, like, a very – she's, like, a bookworm. She, she wants to write, but she's told that her writing is too feminine. So all of her stories, they keep on commenting and saying that, Oh, uh, this isn't a romance. And she's like, no, it's like, they're like, it's a ghost story because her stories have ghosts. She goes, no, there's a ghost in my story, but it's not a ghost story. <laughs> you know, parallelism. It's, it's so funny. Yeah, the argument in the film like is actually very similar the to the film. argument about the film itself. It's funny about like that. But you know, she's so she wants so she starts. So she wants to start writing like another book and she's going to be like, no, I'm going to write with a typewriter. That way they won't know I'm a man and she'll write, you know, with like an assumed name. But anyways, uh, this guy comes around and she, he's trying to earn money so that he can build this, this machine. You know, it's kind of like a, you know, like a, this is like early machinery, right? Like steam's kind of like a thing now. And it's in America and he's trying to get money. He's from Europe. He's like old blood and, you know, like no money to his name, but he, you know, like, his family was at some point like very well to do but so it turns out that he and his sister are trying to raise money here in America she falls in love with him and ends up moving with him to 
his like royal estate. But her father's killed, so she earns, so she like she inherits all of his money, and weird things start to go on. And it's a very interesting film in that, first off, I mean, beautiful colors and just cinematography. It's there's so much red and blue, and but like in, not like you're used to seeing, not like in a, you know, it's not like that classic like Hollywood, you know, like orangey red and like the blue look. It's like this deep, deep blood red. You know, it's crimson, guys. It's in the title. Um, and first off, just a beautiful, beautiful film. But it's the fact that Guillermo del Toro is such an interesting director in that uh, I feel like a lot of his films aren't as good as like a lot of other filmmakers' films in that he kind of has to make a lot of concessions, typically, in a Guillermo del Toro film is what I get the sense of. For example, in this one, he really fought for the R rating. Like, he, he really had to fight for it, but because of it, they were told, they're like, all right, here's what we project it, like, the, you know, like, it earning, if it's, like, a PG-13 film, and his, this will be your budget, you know, but subsequently, if you want to go with R, then this is going to be your budget, because this is how much we see it getting. And he's like, I'm going on an R rating, and he fought for it, and he ends up getting it, and that really allows him to do a lot, but because of that, he had to, you know, obviously change his, you know, like, what he could do, and he had to make a, a different kind of film. So what's interesting about Guillermo del Toro films is that he has to, like, it's all about the details for Guillermo del Toro. It's all about his, like, his homages to other works. It's all about his, like, there will be small moments in the film. And they'll speak to, like, a lot of what he wants to say as opposed to just, like, the whole thing. I'm not saying the whole thing isn't good, but it's just that he really is very detail-focused. And the details matter more than in a lot of other films, that I've, like, a lot of other directors' works, where, like, you know, like, everything is part of it, but he'll have, like, the overall scheme, but then he'll have these small little details inside the scheme, and what he's trying to say. It's almost like a, like a marble countertop, right? Like, there's, there's, like, the, the, the stone itself, which is, like, the main part of the table, but then there's a little flex in it. That's, like, a Guillermo del Toro film. Anyways, you should all see it. Uh, it's, very, very interesting. It has Jessica Chastain. It has, uh, what's her name? Mia Wachowski. Like, it's like Wasikowska or something. Yeah. Alice from that terrible Alice in Wonderland movie. But no, she's also in some great films. She's in great films. She's in Jane Eyre from, uh, uh, what's the guy? Carrie Fukunaga. And she's also in, uh, oh, what is it? It's Stoker. Stoker. I love Stoker. Yeah, she's in Stoker. Anyways, Park Chan Wook for life. She's pretty much like the queen of gothic romance now. Like all the films I just listed are all gothic romance films. She's that's like God. It might be. It might be gothic romance, but who knows? I mean, it's a Tim Burton film. That's pretty much what he does, although not terribly well usually. Um, yeah, but no, it should really be seen. It's. It's not, I, ah, it's, it's so much in the details. I, um, he wrote a, can I just say one thing that I really spoke to me that I, I saw afterwards, but it, it seemed to me to be emblematic of the film in general. Of course. You're the one talking. Speak away. <laughs> Hooray. I'm going to write it. Uh, he wrote it in a tweet just a few, uh, like a few days ago. I'm going to see if I can find it. While you're, while you're finding, no, I, I really want to see this movie. Guillermo del Toro is, 
an artist. He is like the truest, like one of the truest artists working today. And his movies suffer for it because he's trying to work within the system and it yeah. is not, is not panning out for the guy. You know, you can say his movies are terrible or you don't like them, whatever, but you cannot doubt the passion and artistry that goes into his films. I got that fucking massive hardcover book that he put out last year. Uh, Del Toro, he's, He's he's the shit. You're right though. That's what I was trying to speak to. Like he's yeah, the system. It's really what it is. Like he's a great filmmaker. He just he needs to get out of the system. He should just start making independence or something. Or his, his his visions are so big. He can't do. He needs that money. But the thing is, none of his movies ever make money. So I it's 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 like the Wachowski sisters. Like. But uh yeah, it's like how do they how do they keep getting money to make these huge grand visions when they don't make it back at the box office? And that's where Del Toro is. Del Toro just needs to get the same agent the Wachowskis have because they go off and make the craziest shit. And you can tell like the studio system isn't really hurting their vision. Like Jupiter's saying. Um, yeah. Um but Del Toro, the studio is actively fucking up his program. Every time you read about it, every time he has a new movie coming out. <clears throat> yeah, like, that's what I get. Like, the more films I watch, I'm just kind of like, ah, like, I can tell what he wants to do. And then it's like, like, you ever seen the original Hellboy? Which is totally hampered by the fact that, like, throw in this, like, fish out of water character. And, like, have, like, this weird, almost triangle, you know, like, r- romantic triangle thing. And, like, there's, like the, like, the token white guy who's like, you have a choice, Hellboy. Yeah. You have a joy, and it's like, what the hell is he doing in there? And then for the second film, obviously he's gone, thank God. But that's that's how I feel about every Tarantino, uh, not Tarantino, about every Guillermo del Toro film. He just, uh, it's it's he's having a hard time. But his films are still great. Besides that, I, I feel. But no, anyways, the tweets that he wrote, he wrote three. I'll just say them out loud right now. This this is the kind of at the core of what he was tra- is trying to do with the film. But he he wrote that. The myth of romantic love is the lowest nutrient food for the human spirit, a sugar rush for the soul, junk food. True love is the desire to give, not the need to receive. And he said, Crimson Peak's love story is, for me, about Edith finding herself and loving Thomas in spite of his dark side. Because when she gets to this new house in, you know, in England, there's this, un- there's this unspoken distance between both her new sister-in-law and, you know, her husband, I mean, she keeps on trying to, you know, like consummate the marriage kind of deal. And for the sisters in law is always getting in the way. And there's this every time that they have like a genuine moment, her and her new husband, Thomas, uh, like the sister in law will come in the way or he'll be torn away by something. And so, you know, he's being tortured by something. Right. There's this this dark thing in their past and we're, you're not quite sure what it is. And eventually she's able to like have enough of an effect on him that there are, you know, they're able to consummate it. And like, there is like a real love between Edith and Thomas. Edith is the girl who's like the writer and Thomas is the guy who's the, you know, her husband. And then when we finally learn what this is and we finally see like, what's like the grand design is behind this whole thing, because remember her, her father was murdered and all the money has gone to Edith. When we finally discover it, it has, it's this moment that's so like it uses the actual it uses actual film as a way as a trend you know as like a medium to re- reveal truth and there's the uh oh, what's his name is it army hammer 
Might be Army Hammer. If that's who that is, that is his name. <laughs> I'm trying to look whether he is going to be in his... Uh, I think it's Army Hammer. No, it's not Army Hammer. It's the other guy then. Oh, God. Who, uh, who, I don't know. I'll just look up Crimson Peak super quick. Sorry, guys. Charlie Hunman, the guy from Pacific Rim? Yes. That's him. Thank you. Oh, I don't know why I'm that terrible. But yeah, Charlie Hunnam. He like he's actually does a fantastic job in the film. He um because he was like the guy who's been like loving her from since you know like since the beginning, right? Like Edith, and when she marries this kind of dark stranger who's you know very mysterious and you know and that you know he he kind of is like what's going on like what the hell? But he's worried about her, so he tracks her down. And it's oh, it's it's just such a weird. I I don't I can't talk about it without spoiling it. <laughs> I think uh, Kyle's trying to say Crimson Peak. Good watch. Yes, watch the Crimson Peaks, guys. Dear Margot Toro, that should be enough. It is. It, it should for, be. Enough. For me, it's enough. Some people need more convincing, but for me, it is plenty. Plenty There's no enough. going in that it's not a horror film. And you'll enjoy it. If you go in thinking it's a horror film, then of course you're going to be disappointed. I didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> yes! The voice of dissent. So anyways, that's what I wanted to talk about. That's all I have to say about Crimson Peak. Alright, number four, Crimson Peak. Um, on to number threes already. Wow. Uh, Corey, you're number three. I'm wondering if I'm thinking someone else has this maybe higher. Maybe we should talk about it then. Um, You're just whispering to my ear. No one else will hear. <laughs> my number three is the Hateful Eight. Yeah, it's higher, but it's okay. Let's <laughs> talk about it now. now. Talk about it. Yes. No, we're talking yeah. about it. It's your number three. Yeah, okay. talk about it. It's a movie. About <laughs> wow, that's certainly a word or two. Maybe three. Do tell. If you count the contraction, it's it's four words. <laughs> um, it's the newest Quentin Tarantino movie. His eighth movie. His eighth, mm. eighth movie. Uh, it's a Western mystery. It's a bottle um, episode, basically. The what? So it's almost a bottle episode. A what episode? A single location. Oh, oh, yeah, pretty much. Uh, well, for all intents and purposes, yeah. The beginning of the movie is like, what is that? It's probably almost an hour long. And then the other two hours is <laughs> in the house. I'm just going to say straight up, sir, anyone that's listening, anyone who says this movie is overlong and bloated and long. all of that nonsense, you guys are full of it, man. That it's shit was like long. gone in an hour and a half. I don't even know what happened to those three hours. This, yeah, this was like the <laughs> fastest, longest movie I've seen. Uh, it was very captivating. Um right from the get-go um it's a what is the right word for this eccentric cast of characters yeah accurate there uh 
Samuel Jackson. Uh, Tarantino regular. He's pretty much the main character. Um, he's a bounty hunter. Uh, <clears throat> Kurt Russell is the also a bounty hunter. Um, but his methods for bounty hunting are a little different. Uh, and then there's, um, Jennifer Jason Lay. She's the criminal that Kurt Russell is bringing in to hang. There's Walter, Walton Goggins, which he was amazing. Walter Goggins, he's going to be rising, baby. His star is shining finally. <laughs> uh, he's the new sheriff uh, for the town they're trying to get to. Um, then uh, Michael Madsen is, what do they call him, the cow puncher? Yep. I'm not even sure what that means. You punch cows. <laughs> yeah, I'm about to say, like, it's, it's exactly very simple. You just put, like, the two words together and think about uh, it. <laughs> Tim Roth is the actual hangman. Um, Bruce Stern is a, uh, was a Confederate general. He's the Confederate. And then the the Mexican guy, uh, Damien Dem, Damien Bircher. Damien, he actually is Hispanic, so I'm sure there's there's an accent to that inflection. There's and then the that's three, all on the A. That's all eight yeah. of them. Yep. The uh, though there's technically more than eight people. <laughs> Damn it! Can't Look, say that the, out world, loud. the world what? needs to know that Zoe Bell is in this movie somewhere, and that should be enough for anyone because Zoe Bell oh. is. Oh, the best. okay. Okay. Well, there's also. Uh, okay, let's just say spoiler alerts right now. Ob. Okay? Ob should count as a person, right? Yeah, Ob's a person. He he's in the movie the whole time, but he doesn't count as one of the eight. So you know he there there are nine main characters. No spoilers, no surprises, no plot twists. There are nine people. They just don't count Obi because Obi's not hateful. Oh, is that that's the discerning factor? Okay. I don't know. He gets pretty rustled when he has to go out into the snow. Wouldn't the anybody be that's rustled different. when they had to go out in that? <laughs> what? That's not hateful. No, that's like uh, you, you can't really you can't hate an inanimate object. It's human. Uh, and then uh, Ennio Morricone. Is that how you pronounce that? He did the score. Uh, Notable for being his first Western film that he scored in about forty years. Yep. Oh, he did and the Dollars trilogy, which was like fifty years ago. Um. So that that's the that's the breakdown of the movie. Um. So this. So some of the music is from a unused soundtrack for the thing. 
and that's what the movie starts with, and that music and the beginning of the movie. It just it really sets the tone for what's to come, and it, it's just it was a great way to just pull you in. Uh, it's a slow burn. Oh yeah, it's it's a very slow zoom out. No, I'm talking about the film, the whole film. Oh, it's a, it's a slow burn. Lies, not, I wouldn't fast. say it's, I wouldn't say it's slow. <laughs> the payoff comes till way late in the film, yeah. but I mean, it, yeah. it's. I thought the, the film was cracking. You know, there's a difference yeah. between in my in my mind. Yes, the movie is a slow burn. Kyle is not wrong in that. This is a slow burn. Like if the, you're, the, if this you're film waiting, is hopping. If like, you're like waiting it, like for, it feels like it moves fast, but it, like for like the thing to happen, it's a it's a slow burn. Yeah, yeah. If you're waiting for you know the end, yeah. It, takes three hours to get there but it's like a, it's like a game of clue but everybody has a revolver okay like that's that's pretty much what it is no well, you're skipping over the most obvious the one of the biggest you know films that's influencing this one is the thing in addition to ennio morricone and his unused score there there's a there's a a scene that actually is lifted entirely from the thing it's the focus on the paranoia that right. the, thing, the, the thing did. It, it's less a clue mystery as it more is like the thing where it's about the boiling racial tension underneath the increasing paranoia. I'm, this is Quentin Tarantino's The Thing. <laughs> I, I'll take that. The hateful things. There's no Keith David, though. I'm, that would have made this movie <laughs> like... Like, this movie, like, it's not on my list, but man, if Keith David was in this bitch with right right there next to Kurt Russell, I'd be like, look, I'm not even going to talk about five through two, the hateful eight with Keith David. (laughs) (laughs) The movie's mostly talking. Uh, As is a want for a Tarantino film, which was a complaint, but I'm like, have you seen any Tarantino movies? But I, I think, like, because I recent, recently watched Inglorious Bastards, uh, which also has a lot of good talking. Uh, but I think the hateful, I haven't rewatched, uh, Kill Bill and I have, I haven't seen Death Proof. Um, but I feel like, this is probably my favorite Quentin Tarantino movie. I feel like it does those conversations the best for me. Um, cause yeah, it just like, uh, it starts off with Samuel Jackson, uh, getting into a carriage with Kurt Russell and Jennifer Jason Leigh. And it's just right from the beginning. It's just incredibly captivating. Uh, the characters are really well established yeah and it just keeps building and building and when they get to the house um i can't remember mimi's haberdashery or Mama's yeah haberdashery. Mimi's. mini mini's haberdashery mini's haberdashery yeah yeah uh yeah so like a, a blizzard comes in so they have to they can't go straight to the town uh so they have to stay there uh and I think what 
what starts the paranoia is Minnie herself is missing, and the people that are already there at the house give an explanation for it. It's Minnie's uh, too. But Samuel Jackson doesn't really buy it. Yeah, and it's just it's just back and forth. I feel in. I feel your words in my soul, Kyle. You may you may not be saying or Corey, I know you may not be saying them, but I feel them. Like the it's dialogue almost, is amazing. Yeah, and it's and the and then like when things do get gory, like it's to such an extreme that I think it becomes funny instead of horrifying. Uh, Tarantino is always r- both at the same time. It's it's hilarious. Um, and Samuel Jackson has a speech at one point, and it's just something else. <laughs> um, I was just thinking of his uh, his line about the sign that Minnie used to have up. Right. No dogs. <laughs> Kyle, you're so quiet. I'm listening. Oh, okay. He wants. He wants to give me a chance. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, you know, I want Corey to say things. I like listening to Corey. Trying to say things. I don't know if we ever figured this out, but there's a moment where the movie like breaks the fourth wall, uh, and it's kind of amazing. You're talking about the uh, voiceover narration. Yeah. It's not even breaking the fourth wall, though, because that would be the character speaking to us. It's, it's that's like, Tarantino telling the story. Yeah, it's like the, well, it, does, it's the it doesn't feel thing. like well, because there wasn't really a narrator before, so I, I I feel like like it broke the immersion of you know it does, but it's not like in a typical way. Like it's a, it's super experimental. No. What Tarantino's well, doing? Well, it, it it is and it isn't. How did you see the movie, Corey? I saw the road show. Okay, so so yeah, that that's how it was intended, you know. So you you go and you have your intermission, and you're gone for ten fifteen minutes. The the narration comes in, and it's basically like, hey, you know, part two of the movie, like in Kill Bill Volume Two, where there's kind of that scene at the beginning where Uma Thurman is catching you back up on the story. It's it's that it's that kind of serial. Um, serialized storytelling because you're just coming back from the intermission and I can see like watching if you watch the normal version which I haven't yet that that would be just the most disorienting and fucked up thing but I I think it works and the purpose of it was because it was designed for that road show to have the intermission and then you come back and it's like hey guys last time on the hateful eight that's what like makes the film like I can't even imagine the film without it like it's such a big moment it, it's my it's my favorite moment in the entire film. When, when that when he just like starts talking and then like like I said it, I I feel like it's the most experimental thing I've seen in a film in a long time. Like as far as in in that specific way, like it's just fucking bananas. What are you done talking, Corey? Uh, uh, maybe I don't know. I, I was looking it up. It looks like um, the Blu-ray is 187 minutes. It, it's it, it's the short it better version. Be shorten. It sounds. Yeah. It looks like it's the full one. 
Unless sure. they change things. When, when they announced the Blu-ray um, a few weeks ago, I saw all the press releases and everything. That it was it was the wide release version that they're putting uh, up that they're doing. Because the on Amazon the on the runtime it says 187 minutes, so that would be the. Uh, well, I was going to pick. I was going to pick it up either way. I, I don't care, uh, <laughs> but that'd be interesting. But yeah, no, it, it needs to. It should be released in that roads roadshow yeah, format with definitely. The, the overture, and that was that was a really cool experience. Yep, I was going to say that. Like that's the whole like other part of the movie, but not the movie was like like bringing in like these pro- like actual projectors. It's not digital. Uh, and then like having the overture with the, the thing music, um, and having the intermission, it was just, yeah, it was great. Yeah. What, what, what I love about the movie, you know, just really quick is how Tarantino made this movie in 2015. It's a Western. It's one of the oldest genres of film. It takes place in the 1800s, but it is probably one of the most relevant films for today. This is, this is Tarantino in all of his Tarantino isms, whether, you know, for good or for bad, sitting down and having a talk with America about its race issue. That is literally like this whole movie is Tarantino saying, look guys, we need to talk, but he does it in his way, which is violent and vulgar and fucked up. And a lot of people, I, I, I saw this, you know, from a, a lot of different viewpoints. Like they're they're missing what Tarantino's really trying to do with the movie because they're getting lost in wow, this is the most sexist, racist, vulgar, violent thing. And it's like, yes, it is. That is America in 2015. We are some fucked up shits right now. And that's Tarantino just saying, hey guys, let me lay it out for you. But it's wildly entertaining at the same time. You feel bad for in being entertained by all of the slurs and everything. It's it's Tarantino to the hilt. But I love how he want he sat down and had a very relevant discussion that I mean this movie could have been any genre, but chose to make it as a western taking place in the eighteen hundreds. I mean it just adds more emphasis. It gives it gives uh, storytelling context so that it's not actually 2015 where he's having people talk and act like this. Um, it, it gives him a little more free reign to be as vulgar and violent and candid as he is. Hateful Eight was the shit, yo. It's even close to my favorite Tarantino, though, which is strange, but Tarantino has yet to make a bad film for me. And if anyone says Death Proof is a bad film, I'll slap him. <laughs> It'll have to be an internet slap, though, so, you know. Pre- <laughs> preemptive just for you, Kyle. Thanks. <laughs> I shaved extra close in anticipation of being smacked by you. Good. Good. I hope it stings good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Hateful Eight, number three. Yep. Um, I'll give my number three, which is Charlie Kaufman's new film, Anomalisa. Oh, I wanted to see that, but it is freaking fantastic. It's in stop motion. 
and um, this film couldn't really be done in max stop motion. Uh, the faces are... They look like they're stop motion faces, like... You can see the seams between the face and the rest of the head, uh, which is part of the movie because he is living in a world where he can only hear one voice because everything is so samey and so monotone. And he's trying to cling to that... Uh, the one person that he can see is different, which is the Lisa in the film. Um, and it's just kind of humanizing to see this person um, like find entertainment in the world that he lives in. Uh, anyone else seen it? I have. I have not. Go see it. It's very good. Um, like, I saw this in January or something, because that was when the wide release is. But, um, it, or Inside Out was probably a consensus top film for me until I saw this, and now everything's in flux in my head. Uh, but this is very fantastic. Damn, very fantastic. Yes. It's not just regular fantastic. I just want to hear what you have to say, Corey. I want to hear you. I said several things. But you know what I mean. Like, you, you, you could say a bit more. Maybe, maybe he's so what, how, what, did you, what did you think of the ending? Because I've heard some controversy. I like the ending. Um, I mean, it's not... I want to say this. I mean, I can elaborate on what the controversy is because I know that much at least. But sure, let's hear. If anyone cares, let's hear. Let's hear what the controversy is. All right. Is. So apparently, um, it 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 is or it isn't in question that like the main character rapes the lady at the end. What? Isn't that it? No. They have Thought it was. consensual I sex am. earlier. Oh, they totally have sex in the, in the movie, and then you just see his uh, stop-motion schlong hanging all over the place after he gets out of the shower. It's kind of hilarious. Uh, maybe I confuse that with something else. As long as, it, like, if, he, if there is a rape in there, as long as the film does not frame it as a good thing and that he is still a great person because of it, there's no no issue with having that as part of the content of the film. There's artistic merit. Oh, yeah, there's only three uh, three actors in this movie. David Doulis, who plays the main character, Michael Stone. Uh, Lupin. What? Professor Lupin. Yep. Uh, Jennifer Jason Lee plays Lisa, and then <laughs> okay, Tom maybe Newman, this everyone was, yes, else. Tom Newman plays everybody else, <laughs> like boys, uh, boys, girls, kids, everyone. 
That's pretty the, funny. The Tooth Fairy plays everybody. Ah. Yeah. So this is off-putting at first because he gets in the taxi. It's Tom Noonan. Um. And he drives to the hotel. He gets a call from his wife, and it's also Tom Noonan. And I'm like, this is very weird. I did not expect this. Because he's using the exact same voice. Because everything is so, uh... The same. Yes, so samey. Including his wife and son, who have the same voice and same face. Uh, it's very good. It's Charlie Kaufman, which is, uh, for me to go watch it. I've, supre- I've seen surprisingly very little Charlie Kaufman stuff, even though, like, everything he's made or written or whatever is like, hey, I want to go see that. I should go see that. People say that's good. That looks like it's entirely up my alley, and yet I have not actually seen any of it except for Eternal Sunshine. Yeah, I've seen three of what looks like six or seven. Um, but they've all been really, really good movies. Uh, he also raised a fuss about him being nominated for... Best animated feature, but not best picture, because it's like this is a really, really good movie, um, and because it's stop motion, it's not nominated for best picture. Is basically what it came down to, or at least that's what some people thought. Which isn't surprising. That is the bias of the Academy. Yep. Animation just doesn't get its its due by like all of America. Thanks, America. Terrible country. You guys have seen the Annie Awards. You know how it is. I haven't seen the Annie Awards. You're lucky. It's like a night of sadness for everybody who's not Disney or DreamWorks, which is to say most of the animation community. Anyway, Anomalisa. It's very good. Moving on. Kyle, you're number three. Right, number three. Uh... Uh, I'm just gonna talk about you know I would I'm gonna talk about something else that like I wouldn't normally mention. So uh, I really appreciated this film. It was uh, I'm gonna talk about doc- a documentary because I have to get out of documentary in the top five. And I, I know I do anyways. Documentaries are usually really good. And I want to mention one uh, just because I, I already t- I talked about its prequel uh, last year. Or two years ago, or whenever it was. So I'm not going to talk about it today, but I have to mention everybody should go and see The Look of Silence, Joshua Oppenheimer's The Look of Silence. An incredible film. It's a spiritual sequel. It completes the story he began to tell with The Act of Killing, which is about the mass murders, the mass killings in Indonesia. The first film centered on one of the killers, and then this film focuses on the brother of one of the people who was murdered as he confronts the people who, you know, who killed his brother. It's, yeah, uh, I think, I think genocide is more the word you're looking for. Yeah, it was, it was, it, it, it's, it, it's, it was, yeah, it was genocide, not just a, a mass murder. It, yeah. It's, it's pretty bad. Anyway. So, yeah. So this is the, so that's what I want to mention. This is like what Chris did a minute ago when he mentioned that one film. I'm just mentioning that one, but that's not my number three. Uh, although that is better than the film I'm going to mention, but because it's like a very big documentary, I'm not going to talk about it as my number three. I do want to give some attention to Going Clear, 
which is not as good as Look of Silence, but I want to talk about it anyways. <laughs> but uh, this is the documentary about the Scientologist church, and almost all the people in the film are actually, like, they used to be Scientologists. And they talk about their experiences in the Scientologist church. Uh, they talk, like, and they're also uh, fairly famous people, it should be noted. They're not just like, the Scientologist church, like, actively wants to get, like, famous people into the Scientologist church. And they promote those people, and they... But these are a few people who have actually gone out of it for reasons, and they, they talk about it. And the reason why I'm mentioning these both together is because documentaries and films in general have a a habit of ending the film with on a happy note. Like they'll have like a little thing at the end going like, Oh, but you know, around this time, like this person went to jail or something. Right. And you're supposed to get some closure from it. Like, Oh, like things are better. You know, like, Oh, things are going to get better. Right. This happens mostly. This happens equally uh, like an equal amount in documentaries as it does in live action. It's just, we like to have a happy ending of some sort. We like to have some sort of, sort of closure, but Documentaries uh, recently are the best documentaries and the best films in general um, tend to not give us closure because that's not really how it works. You know, happy endings only like really exist in, in fiction. Generally, you know, like the bad guy wins kind of deal. And that's pretty much what happens with Going Clear and with uh, Look of Silence. But with Going Clear, these, these people who end up getting out of the church... Uh, they, they talk about their experiences and how, you know, their own, like they would, they, they're, the Scientologist church has these things where you have to essentially like, it, like, it'd be like you have to go into this thing and you have to like absolve yourself of everything. And you have to like tell these guys, like, you know, the people who are in the church, like everything, these recorders, and they write down every single like negative thought you've had about the church and like against people and things. And they essentially at a certain point, like they like, they will use it to blackmail you. If you leave the church, they'll like, slander you for like forever they'll follow you around and that kind of thing and the people the thing is these are like famous people in general who are talking about this and a few of them in particular they just talk about how like they leave they eventually they realize that like what the church is doing is bullshit and they have to leave and like their families though are still in the church and due to like the church's teachings this you know the scientologist teachings like their fan members won't talk to them. They treat them like total pariahs from the, the, their community. Like every single person they knew who's in the, like they just totally drop them. Like we're talking about like people, like a woman who hasn't seen her daughter in like 20 years kind of deal. Like I'm probably exaggerating the number a bit, but like, you know, what, what can't see her grandchild can't see her daughter. They're, they're, they literally like have erased them from existence and they refuse to acknowledge them except for to denounce them. And like, I've been that they do. And the people who have come together to make this documentary, they come together and they're not like, you know, we don't get a, like any moment where they're like, yeah, like, look at what we did. We really dealt the church a blow. They're just doing it because they've gone like, you know what? I helped get like so many people into this movement and I've done so much to help the movement that at this point, like when I realized all that I had done and the scale of it, like all they could do is they're just doing this documentary because like they have to like it, it's like a, it's a moral obligation for them. Right. But it's not even that it's like like they have nothing left. You know what I mean? They, they just reach a point where they're just talking about it. And they're like, like, I have to do this. Like, they're not going to get anything out of it, though. Like, they realize that, like, it's too big for them. And like 
they're just left with like all the all their actions at the end and what they helped the church do and there's no redeeming it they're just like this is just all that they can do they're it's you know it's it's a hell of a place to leave you and at the end of it it's just like fuck it's like seeing inside of a cult like in real time it's it's crazy and this isn't entirely similar but uh i was raised a mormon like my family's mormon and uh it's pretty much a cult too (laughs) although less of a cult slightly it's the emphasis on doing good things for other people i'm sure lessens the cultish blow Yeah, but yeah, uh, it's just, it's like seeing inside of a cult and it, it's, it's pretty terrifying. Like a cult dressed up as a religion. It's, I, I mean, my experiences were nothing like these people, but in general, like the crazy stuff they believe in and a lot of the, and some of the, you know, like the tactics and how like they, like, there's a lot of similarities and it's just, you know, we, we think it's like a modern day and like, oh, like a cult, like, you know, like cults are something you make fun of, but it's like, no, they just, they just know that it's a PR battle now and now they just don't call themselves cults. It, it should, it's a great documentary though. Uh, they talk about all the terrible things, like how the, the church uses all this stuff against you. They talk about how they use Tom Cruise and how they like, like all of that, all that shit. Uh, they talk about like the effects on just like normal people and on the, you know, their families and, it's pretty much leaves you as like they're they're crazy, but they have like so much power, and there's no kind of government. You know, it's also part of a thing of you know governmental agencies have for a long time been kind of like non-intervention. Like you see this a lot with uh, oh, what is it? Like right now we're seeing this a lot with uh, model, you know, there's like a lack of antitrust regulation right now in America, and this is kind of a part of that. Like it, they do some really underhanded shit. And it just leaves you feeling like nothing, but in a bad way. Still the best episode of South Park ever. <laughs> so, yeah, anyways, I, I, like I said, I don't think it's really on anybody's best of list, but it, it's a great film. Yeah. That was an HBO original documentary, too, wasn't it? Yeah. And it came out early in the year, which is and of course, like I said, by the time that like the end year awards came, like it wasn't, you know, like other our like documentaries were better this year, but uh, it's. I still think it's really important to watch this film. Although you should all watch the Look of Silence. It, it is a better documentary and more important. But it's just this is a smaller film. And I wanted to talk about it. Number three. All right. Number three. Going clear. <laughs> Chris, you're number three. <sighs> My number three. Uh, My number three is a movie that like. Crimson Peak was improperly marketed. And for anyone who actually went and watched it, it not only actually did follow through on some of the promise of the marketing, but unlike Crimson Peak, I'm sure that people still walked away extremely satisfied because the movie did actually make quite a decent chunk of change. Um, That's The Gift. Uh, The Gift was marketed as a horror film. Um, it's produced by Blumhouse Productions, which those are the guys that do the 15 million different uh, found footage horror movies. They got their big start with Paranormal Activity, and they got Insidious and The Conjuring, all of this stuff. They also did Whiplash uh, last year. 
So they're not strictly a horror production company. Um, the film is this, I guess this is a theme, the directorial debut of actor Joel Edgerton. Um, what an absolutely tremendous and powerful film. Um, like I said, the marketing very strictly tries to place it as a very typical horror film. Um, I saw all the trailers tons of times, and I was like, you know, hey, that looks pretty good. I'd go see it. But it's totally, hey, that looks like any other movie that would be like that. And it blows all expectation out of the water. Um, the basic premise is um, married couple played by uh, Jason Bateman, who – Anyone who Jason Bateman is one of the better actors of today. Um, he he's really been been known for his comedy, um, Arrested Development, and all of that stuff. But he has some really good chops, and here he um, displays some extremely good dra- uh, dramatic uh, capabilities as well. Um, Jason Bateman, his wife Rebecca Hall, um, they move to California. Um, so that he can, you know, he's getting this great new big job and they're going to be making all that big money. He's like an architect or something. One day while they're out shopping, they they casually run into this guy and he's a very off-putting individual. Um, turns out that this guy actually used to go to high school with Jason Bateman. His name is Gordo. Um, and so... Gordo is like, hey, you know, I remember you from high school. Let's 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 catch up. Let's hang out. You know, this this is awesome. You moved to L.A. Um, and so they, they, they start hanging out as friends. Um, Gordo comes over for for dinner. Um, they see each other out and about the town. Um, and then Gordo starts to come around a little too frequently. Um, Jason Bateman starts to think he's a creep and he's trying to push him away. And I, I'm, some people may consider what I'm about to say next spoilers, but it's not a spoiler and it, it helps, it helps cement what the film really is and why it's so good and it's, it's so powerful. The film is about, uh, about school bullying. That, that is what the film is about, which that's another hot topic, um, here in America over the last couple of years. It's entirely about school bullying. Um, Gordo was the kid who got picked on in high school. And so now he's coming back and he's an adult and he wants to say, Hey, let bygones be bygones, put the past behind me. You know, we're all adults now. And, uh, Jason Bateman is still a cocksucking asshole. Um, and shit goes downhill pretty quick. And, And this is where it does still contain, elements of horror it has probably one of the best jump scares which a lot of people groan at the the, just the simple naming of a jump scare but these are actually really effective tools if done properly it's just that 99.9 percent of jump scares in modern horror films are not utilized properly this film has one of the top jump scares of all time in it that shit was fucking off the hook um wait i don't remember what was the jumps? I've seen the gift. I don't remember when when she um, when she's taking the shower. Oh, okay, right. That that was that was good shit. Um, but and the, there's there's elements of home invasion. Um, 
I'll, I'll keep some of the later uh, reveals and uh, plot developments under wraps, but it gets incredibly dark um, and it gets really fucked up and it starts messing with you. Um, you as the viewer, you start, you start, who should I side with? Um, Jason Bateman, who is having these things done to him. But wait, he is an asshole. He is the jock. He is the guy in high school who ruined people's lives by trying to be popular. And then you have Joel Edgerton. You know, he not only directed it, but he also wrote the film and stars as Gordo. Um, he is the sympathetic character. He is trying to be a better person, put the past behind him and, and not let this, uh, you know, what happened to him as a child destroy things. But then he starts doing these really fucked up things. And so you, you have, you have no one to root for, but that's, that's the effects of bullying. You know, the, there, there is no winner. You, you are either the asshole or you are the victim and it is entirely within plausibility. And it happens more often than we would like to think that the victim comes out twisted because of it. They, they become damaged. And the end of the movie is entirely ambiguous. I can see so the good. ending of this. I can see the ending of this movie pissing people off because of its ambiguity, but it's that ambiguity that sells that final point. Um, it sells it so hard. It is, it is amazing, Corey. Holy, like, so I walked good. out, I was just like, the gift is fucking amazing. And, you know, people did go see it. People did really like it. Um, I, I didn't see a whole lot of negative attention about it, but it's not, it wasn't a big hit, you know, it's a Blumhouse picture. Yeah. So it, it, it may have grossed like $8 million at the box office. So it was, a, it wasn't a hit. It barely made any money, but the movie was made for like 500 K or something. So it was a huge hit for the production company. Um, it, it's one of those types of, uh, more smaller independent films where it was a huge hit because it cost nothing to make, uh, but did not make a dimple in the, the broader scope of the year 2015. And I really, really think it should. It, it's, it's an important film, um, with the way that it, the themes and the topics that it discusses and it does it with not just agency and urgency, but I mean, it's, it doesn't handle it lightly. It, it does, it's not half baked. It's not half assed. This is, this movie is on point. And Joel Edgerton may be, you know, whitewashing history by playing fucking Ramses in goddamn Exodus. But if this is the type of films that he wants to make as a writer and director, go right the fuck ahead, bro. This, the gift. Yeah. <laughs> I I agree. Okay. The gift. Number three. Take a break. We'll come back with our twos and ones. talk about number twos and number ones i will start things off with number twos 
and say that my consensus number one for most of the film was, or for most of the year, was knocked off. Number two now is Inside Out. Um, Disastrous, Corey. I know. Disastrous. I know. It's all right. Uh, Inside Out is about this little girl who moves from Minnesota to San Francisco, and she is crushed because it was not Minnesota. Um. <laughs> I was about to say, like, this sounds like a really personal The moment. end. Yeah. <laughs> the end. I can see why Corey likes it already. Um. No, it's just about uh, this girl who is struggling to find um, a place to be in this new in this new town and struggling to uh, accept who she may become um, because there's no more there's no more hockey there's no more uh, anything else that she loves in this town um, and it's told through her five emotions in her head. Joy, sadness, anger, uh, fear. Fear and disgust. Yes, fear and disgust. It's about say and the other two. Which is an extremely cute way to tell this story. And devoid of both joy and sadness through what is going on. The plot machinations in her head she's left to have her life controlled by disgust, fear, and anger. And it's very uh, it's very good to watch movies. (laughs) Oh my gosh! (laughs) Uh, I lost what I was saying. I know I got that part. (laughs) That part was clear. Uh, that was beautiful, Corey. That was like the greatest. I try. I, th- I think Corey, Corey is probably fishing for uh, comments from the peanut gallery, but I will reserve those. We can talk about the film, you know. Like I can, I can like stall while you're thinking about it, Corey. Talk about Bing Bong. Bing Bong, the archer. He's an archer and such. Do you want to, me to stall while you think of the thing, Corey? I just opened up my letterbox for review. It shows up. What? Hoping that it shows up in there. Oh, it's here. Okay, that's why I was curious. Better be here. I like sadness. I like dinosaurs. So that's like one of the things—not about dinosaurs, but about sadness. Um, because Riley is such the main character. Riley is such a happy character. Um, she has often been been unable or unwilling to accept that she can be really sad um, because there are these core memories <clears throat> and these are the memories that shape her life, the rest of her life and the rest of her personality um, and all of them are joyous but sad, sadness brings in the uh, the worst factors of these memories because they're things that lead up to them or completely separate things that happen that are very sad to her. But those don't define her character because she's 
She is yet to be corrupted by this world at a mere 11 years of age. But moving was uh, one of the saddest things that happened to her. And she's finally allowing, um, allowing herself to be shaped by both happy and sad memories. Because it's not just the happy parts of our lives that um, that shape us and that happen to us, but it's uh, it's all these emotions that factor in. The end. Indeed. <laughs> Bing bong. Indeed, Corey. Oh, Bing bong. Man, I forgot about him. Yeah, Bing bong. <laughs> Come on. Of course you forgot about Bing bong. Jesus. Why don't you tell us about Bing Bong, Corey? Uh, well, he's a... Wait, who are you talking to? (laughs) You mean who did I mention? I'll leave it up to you guys to decide. All right. Corey, take it away. (laughs) What? Take it away. (laughs) I forget how they describe him. He's like part dolphin, part elephant, or... What? He's He's a weirdo. He's got a... He's got like a cart... That's like powered by music, so it can fly if you uh, sing a song. Ooh, singing a song. No. Okay, so according to the according to the Disney Wiki, he is a pink cotton candy nougat filled elephant cat hybrid pork pie hat purple bow tie with pink polka dots, orange striped legs, brown jacket, matching fingerless gloves. Whoa, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> that is oddly specific. He has an alignment. The, a what? Like a D&D alignment? Sort of. It just says good here, though. Oh. <laughs> I was like, what? It, it, yeah, it does. Alignment. Good. Wouldn't he be, like, chaotic good? Um, maybe. Jangles is bad. Clowns are just bad, period. Anyway, Corey, describe Ping Pong. I, I did. Further. Well, Chris, Chris really. Yeah, I was about to say, he did, he did, so that, that's your favorite character, Logan? Corey? No, my favorite character is Sadness. <sighs> but you didn't mention Sadness, you mentioned Bing Bong. You mentioned Sadness. Yeah, I mentioned but, Sadness. But he brought up Bing Bong several times. Well, yeah, because Corey wasn't talking about Bing Bong. I forgot you guys are Bong. It's like a whole thing, when they get out of the tower, Joy, sadness, and Bing Bong. You don't, no need to force yourself, Corey. If you if you're done, you're done. It's okay. I like the the movie didn't blow me away. I liked it though, but I like the um like the the mechanical side of it, like how everything's like built and how all the memories are like these orbs and how the orbs like get and go f- and they go they go file them like in a library that's like infinite, and then like when they're uh, of no use. They dump them in this, like, abyss. It's, and like, the personality traits are like these giant islands. It's pretty cool. So number two for the whole year. Yeah. It was usurped at the last minute. Spoiler alert. Yep. Um, Kyle, but it wasn't Age so- of Ultron is number one. No, <laughs> we've already got, we've already gotten the trolls, right? That'd be like someone. Could, that I already did the Paul Bart too. You know, yeah. No. All right, so you're Ant Man. No, that's that's the other joke. Yeah, Ant Man. Uh, 
according to my letterbox list, Avengers is 16, Ant-Man is 8. Man, that Avengers movie was such a disappointment. It was. But the Russos are taking over the next Avengers movie, so hopefully it'll be better. Anyway, Kyle, uh, you're number, number two. Number two, A. Well, number two. I'm not going to talk about one because I think Corey might talk about it. So it's just not even kind of come up. He also might have talked about it last year. I can't recall. I think he did. So like, I'm just not even going to bring it up. It's technically a 2014 film, but it was released here in 2015. Do what? Because if it's, yeah, yeah, I'm not going to talk about it, so it doesn't matter. Well, at least tell us what the <laughs> fuck it is. Well, Marnie was there. Technically a 2014 okay. film, but it was released here in America in 2015. Yeah. Yeah. So that counts. That's totally fair game. Well, th- that was my whole thing with the world of Conoco. Yeah, I remember that Corey talked about it last year. So I'm like, we can't talk about this two years in a row. That'd be cheating. Did you talk about it last year? Oh, yeah. We talked about it on the favorite anime podcast. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, Kyle, number two. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. It's tough. It's tough, man. All right, so... This isn't number two. I'm just going to say this right now. It's not number two, but I'm going to talk about it. Because that's the kind of person I am. That's the attitude I like to fucking hear. Nobody yeah. wants to talk. Nobody wants to talk about, yeah, no, this movie was, it was, it was the best. It was like, nah, man, this movie, this movie was the shit. Let me talk about this motherfucker. That's what we exactly. need. Exactly. You know, it's, yeah, it, and it's, ugh, like, it's, it's such like a weird movie. But I'm going to talk about it anyways. And it's not Paul Blart Mall Cop 2. Pixels. Which is where I, which is what I was going to do the joke here the first time. This, this is where you pulled out the Minions joke though. <laughs> yeah, like Minions, right, right. No, like, I, I can't really, no, this is the toughest. Skip somebody else. Let me think about it. I can't even say like the word. It's too tough! Okay, I'll Jesus, go. Jesus, Kyle. I'll go. I'm so indecisive. Kyle, I'll go. Number two. No, skip to someone else. I'll, I'll be back for the I'll next. go. Just, I'll go. All right, Corey. All right. Number two. I saw this movie, uh, like the first week of February last year. Saw it before all you all saw it. Uh, <laughs> ex Because I was in England. Uh, I watched Ex Machina, uh, when it first came out in England, because I was over there at the time. Um, and it's directed by Alex Garland, who he wrote, uh, 28 Days Later, uh, Dread, uh, some other stuff. This is his directorial debut. Um, it's got Donald Gleason, Alicia Vikander, Oscar Isaac. And Oscar Isaac is the best. He's so good. Oscar Isaac for everything, 2016. And it's... Has anyone else seen this? Yep. I never got around to it. I have a failure at life. Oh. Um, so it's basically... Oscar Isaac is like the CEO of fake Google. Okay. And he 
uh, it's called Blue Book. Um, and there's, I think it was like a contest. Um, and whoever won the contest, they got to a one week visit to, um, Oscar Isaac's, like, out in the middle of nowhere, uh, home. And the winner is there to administer the Turing test to an android, uh, who's played by Alicia Vikander. So that's the premise. I don't want to spoil anything, but I, I, like, I, it's like a really good commentary on, um, surveillance, like, in the state, uh, that we are now with surveillance, like, more so with how so many, um, like Google and like Apple and like all these companies have so much data on you. Uh, like credit card companies, like they have so much data on you that they can, they can predict like, like things about yourself that you haven't revealed to them. Um, that they can predict what you might do next. Um, just, and it's kind of hard to get away from that stuff since it's so like ingrained now. Um, and this movie like really plays with that in a really cool way. And it also, you know, just by the nature of it being about, uh, and artificial intelligence, it plays with that as well. And the, you know, the age old, you know, is a, you know, can a robot feel or whatever? And I think it does, a, like, that's been done before, but I think it, it does a really good job with that as well. And like, what does it mean to be alive? And is a robot alive? Um, can a robot have agency? Um, yeah, it's really good. And the, um, the CG, cause they have like, I think Alicia wore like a suit or something, and then they like, in post-processing, put the robot body over her. Uh, it, it looks amazing. Uh, and it's just, everyone knocks it out of the park. Oscar Isaac, Donal, Alicia. It's really good. It's really good. Really big, big crowd pleaser from what I could tell throughout the year. I, I've heard almost nothing but positive things about it. And it, it's always been on my list. So it's like, I should check that out. And I just never did because, you know, whatever. <laughs> it, it, and that also comes to, you know, it, it was also a victim of the, the imaginary hype machine. People backlashing saying, oh, you guys were saying it was so good. I didn't like it, though. So everybody's stupid. Um <laughs> Which that is the hype machine, which is imaginary in in your individual heads, but yeah. <laughs> I not really like X Machina. Oh no! I fell into the hype machine. What? What? Um. So when I was in England, like I didn't like when I went. I went to the um. The Harry Potter like place where they. So jealous. Film the Harry Potter stuff. Um, and on my way there, I saw a bus 
uh, with a poster uh, for Ex Machina. I'm like, what the hell is that? That looks interesting. Uh, and I looked it up, and it was playing that week. Uh, so I made it a point to go see it. Um, and it was... And then it wasn't until, like, April when everyone else could see it. And I was just like, ah! <laughs> it was really good. How are yep. English movie theaters? Um, so, I've seen, like, pictures of, like, more, like, traditional of, like, what we would think of. Um, but the one I went to, Cinema, Cinemark? Uh, Cine something. Um, Cineplex? Cinemark? Cinedime? I don't remember. I'd have to look it up. Cinema? But, um, it's not, it wasn't really theater seating, but the, it was like at an angle, not a great angle though. Um, wasn't a very big screen. Uh, I, I made a mistake. So I use, here, I usually sit up front, and that's, like, perfect for me. Like, not all the way up front, but, like, the last row up front. But, so I sat, I was, I got there early, so there was, like, no one there. So I sat in the front, and it was, like, way too close to the screen. So my neck hurt real bad. Afterwards, I must have thought you were weird. You show up first, and you sit in the very front. You get those robot boobies. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. In front row, you have to worry about people having cell phones out. The thing in like the screen was like directly in front of me, so like they like, and this movie was just so captivating that I just like, I zoned out. I didn't even like. When I got there, it was, like, empty, and when I was leaving, it was, like, full. Like, every seat was taken, and I was like, oh, I didn't even notice all these people were in here. Yeah, and then after that movie, I walked by on the stairs out. There was a sign for It Follows, and that's how I found out about It Follows. Kyle, have you seen Ex Machina? I haven't. All right. So we are really good. One in the one. Don't listen to Corey. Well, I borrowed it from Tony, so I watched it a long time after it came out, um, or at least came out in theaters, and certainly after Corey saw it. Um, but I just felt like I saw this movie already, uh, except with less violence and less naked people. Uh, like the Oshie's Ghost in the Shell movie with the Puppet Master, I, the same ideas were going on, and I liked Oshie's better, so... I came out of Ex Machina feeling uh, emptier. That's sad. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair, though. I respect it, Corey. And Corey. I I haven't seen the film, so I have no stake in this. So I, you know, I appreciate both of your words. All right. Ex Machina, we good? Yep. All right. Uh, uh, Kyle, are you ready or should we give you first first? Alright, I'll go if I need to. I'll just, pre- I will just, I'll just, I'll just preface by saying that a lot of the films I saw this year, uh, that are like on this list, I actually didn't like. But like, they were films that I think that, I thought like I saw. I put all the films I saw on the list. 
and I didn't like a lot of them, so I don't want to talk about them. So that's why I was like wishy washing. So I'm like, I like this film, but it's, you know, I'm gonna talk about this because I don't, it might, it's not gonna get mentioned, but I really enjoyed it for what it was. Uh, I really liked the latest Mission Impossible film. I thought it was fantastic. Well, Mission Impossible. It, quit, quit prefacing with these words of like it wasn't that good. Motherfucker, Mission Impossible. No, I'm not. I'm not talking. I was talking about other films. That's why I'm oh, going to talk okay. about Mission Impossible. No, I liked it. I, I thought number. I thought this is the. This is one of the best ones ever. Like, Man, after Ghost a, Protocol, they're going to have to try really hard to fuck the, fuck this franchise up. Yeah, Ghost Protocol was good, but Rogue Nation, this this latest one, is even better because they finally have someone who can like compete with with you know with Tom Cruise. I mean Rebecca Ferguson, who's introducing this film, she is incredible. Like she has his equal or better. And that Jack Reacher movie was pretty good too. So you know the director's on point with working with Cruise and his madness. Definitely. Like here's the thing: no matter what I think of Cruise as a person. Like, it's, you know, like, I've been just seeing, like I said, going clear, like, his Scientology stuff is crazy. But you can't argue with his, you know, like, the results of his work. I mean, he's just a fantastic actor. Like, oh, this guy wrote Ed I can't contest it. Too. Yeah. The unusual suspects. But this this latest, who's seen it for the record? I've seen Rogue Nation. I have not. I haven't. It just came out on video, and I was going to pick it up. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's pretty fantastic. Like I said, and a, most of it is just because of Re- Rebecca Ferguson, who's the the new female lead. And in fact, she's so good that it's unpre- they're actually bringing her back for the sequel. It'll be the only time that this that, you know they've actually brought back you know like the the you know the quote unquote the Bond girl kind of deal. You know, usually for Mission Impossible, it's a one and done, and they move on. But she's so good, they're like, we got to bring her back. Funny so that you mentioned that. Because Inspector, the Bond girl, doesn't go away. But Spectre's the new one. Yeah, but yeah. Say, you can't that's say what that. I, that's what I'm saying. Like the Bond girl, Inspector, she doesn't. She doesn't was go she away. A, was she in a previous Bond movie? No, she's a new one. But that's what I'm talking about. Like, like well, if she shows saying. up in the next yeah. Bond movie, then that would be what Kyle is talking about. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Because in Mission Impossible, like every, you know, he has like his romantic interests in each film, and you know, sometimes it's nice, sometimes it's not. But they're, you know, whoever like the I, the sexy time, you know what I mean, like girl is, like is gone. In the I next don't want to spoil it, but it's <laughs> it's you're correct. It's she's not in another movie, but neither is this other girl yet in Rogue Nation. No, she's but, already they've already signed her on. Like they said, she's going to be in the next one. Okay. Just, I've seen Spectre. Just trust me. Seems like you like Spectre. It was great. Yeah, anyway, so, I mean, the new oh. Mission Impossible film, it, it, you know, like, it's, is ah. They've really just, like, keyed in on what makes them work. You know, like, for a while there with, like, J.J. Abrams, it was like, ah, you know, and, like, they did, like, there was the whole, angle, uh, not angly, there was the whole, God, it's not Ang Lee, it's the other Lee. John Woo. John Woo, right. I don't know why I think Lee. I'm that movie is fucking terrible. I actually watched it, and I kind of appreciate number two as well, but, like, it's obvious that, that, that you know, the Brian, the first one, the Brian De Palma film, that it's fantastic, and then number two and three, I mean, Abrams is not a very good director, and three is it, kind it, of like... It was <laughs> such a step up from number two, though. I enjoy three. It's just so much better than number two. <laughs> 
Uh, whatever. I like two. I don't like three. Three's like generic. The only thing that makes three work. The only thing that makes three work. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yep. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Like without so Philip Seymour Hoffman, that film would be garbage. Like no one would it would be garbage. But he he pretty much rescues everybody. He rescues everybody. Anyway. And and you know Ghost Protocol is is really good. But like I said, Rogue Nation. This is this is probably my favorite one. It's up there with, up to next uh, number five or number one. This is number five. <laughs> like they have a consistent crew, so it's, it's it has that feeling of a like an episodic like a serial in a way. But it works with the Mission Impossible crew in a way that it doesn't work for say. A lot of other films. I'm very pointedly not looking at superhero films, by which I mean I'm definitely looking at superhero films. And fuck that. <laughs> yeah, fuck that stuff. I don't. I don't want. I hate it. Get that serialization out of my films. But for Mission Impossible, it works because they need like those crazy theatrics, like, and that's part of it. Like they finally realize. I mean, they have so many of the stunts are you know like everything is done for real. And, you know, it's kind of like one of the last few holdouts for, like, the old school way of making films. And it's – and that's, like, what all the film is. Like, if they were to – like, they just realize, like, it's it's like a giant performance, you know. Like, that's what we're watching. Like, you know, like, it only matters because, like, they're actually putting these people through this stuff. Like, for real. In almost every single case. Tom Cruise was actually on that plane. No, he was on the plane. He, You know, that's, there's, like, the scene, you know, where he does that, that, that breathing thing? They don't show it, which is dumb, but he actually held his breath for the full thing. That dude is so crazy. I am so thankful for him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, but that's the thing. Like, the whole film, like, works because, like, they're actually doing these things. And, like, you're, you're aware of it. The fact that they bring, like, the awareness to it, like, that does enhance the enjoyment. Like, you're just watching these people do, like, these crazy, ridiculous things, and it's just like, whoa. And, like, it's huge spectacle, and it works. And, like I said, of course, Rebecca Silverman... Ferguson, sorry. Ferguson. She was just... I was thinking, like, Sarah Silverman, and then Rebecca Ferguson, and then they just got mixed up in my brain. She is not anything like Sarah Silverman, though, so I don't know why that happened. But no, if you see the film, you'll understand. Uh, they totally hit it. Although, I will say that the, the villain is, is weak. The villain's weak. But, like, the actual confrontation with, like, all the situations the villain creates, those are... Really good, but then the actual villain himself is just like he looks like a tweet, like a like a guy who like works in an office, you know, like it's like like a real like a like a administrator. He looks, you know, so he's kind of like a womp, but he he's like a terrible guy. He's like a mastermind, but he doesn't look like. But he, he himself. Quit trying like, to typecast what villains should be, man. There's villains all around us, and they look just like everybody else. Sorry, the guy's like whispering. It's like, <laughs> and it's like, I'm sorry, I, I can't get over. He was like, like a, he was like the model for like a, that weird, like hair dye that makes your hair gray, or something. I don't know. It's like really disappointing. <laughs> like him, like himself, but yeah, but like the rest of the film around, like the, I, I think a lot of that. I do want to mention this that makes it so good, is because they have like a nice balance between like a traditional Mission Impossible. Which is, you know, like the crazy stunts and everything, but it really feels like a, like a Jean Le Car, you know, like, you know, that kind of spy craft and statecraft, like, espionage deal. And that's really cool to see in a Mission Impossible context. So, yeah, Mission Impossible, Road Nation. Good talk. Good talk. Number two, Mission Impossible. Uh, Chris? It's not my action. What? But yeah. 
Not actual number two, but it's good. It's number two now, Kyle. You can't change it. Damn it. Forever. Uh, Chris, bring us home. Number two. Uh, all right. My number two may actually be on some people's number ones, but I don't care. Damn it. I know what you're going to say. <laughs> Damn it. Uh, the, the action spectacle of the year, Mad Max Fury Road. Number one. Oh, Mad Max. I'm a big fan of Mad Max just in general. I, I like the original trilogy. Um, this is a sequel and a reboot and just a Mad Max movie because dude just doesn't give no fucks. Mad Max is whatever... He wants it to be, and the name is blanking because I'm retarded. George Miller, um, he 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 uses Mad Max as a cipher for whatever he wants to generally talk about, and he says, "Okay, this is this is the topic I want to talk about. I'm gonna make a Mad Max movie about this." Um, the one downside that I felt to the movie was it doesn't stick very much to the character growth of Mad Max. Uh, the original trilogy actually does tell. A complete circle, uh, a, a complete story that goes full circle for him as a character. This kind of breaks away from that, but it don't matter because this is Furiosa's show. This is Mad Max at guest starring in Fury Road, and oh my god, it's it's so good. Um, the movie is balls to the wall action spectacle, but it doesn't look cluttered. It's clear exciting action you 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 can't believe the stunts that you're seeing and it doesn't care about realism or anything because this is a fictional world in a post-apocalyptic australia so you got motherfuckers with maxes with masks on hanging from you know straps from a giant speaker set playing a flaming guitar and it is the coolest thing you will ever fucking see um and wrapped up in that is a feminist story about a group of women who are escaping this horrible dictator, Immortan Joe, um, and traveling down the Fury Road to escape from him. And Mad Max is just, instead of being like the white savior, helping the women, blah, 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 he is literally he is immaterial to the story. He is just our, our entry point to getting into this story of Furiosa and these uh, women as they are escaping. And I, I, I don't even know how much I could like go on about the movie because the, the story and the themes are, are they're very clear. You know, it's not hidden or you don't have to really think too much about it, but it's very powerful but the whole thing is a two-hour chase movie. It's non-fucking-stop, and it's so exciting. And to, to be able to sit back and look at the movie and think about what the movie is saying and appreciate the type of story George Miller is telling with Furiosa, it elevates it higher than any action movie that in recent memory that you can think of. This is the whole package, a real deal film that just so happens to be a fucking two hour car chase that is so cool. Oh, so cool. <laughs> and the guitar flaming, you know, 
That's I'm not making that up. That is in the movie if you haven't seen it, and it's awesome. Don't don't be talking shit about my Mad Max, Corey. I will smack you down. And Tom Hardy. People were lamenting the loss of Mel Gibson, but you know what? Mel Gibson's prime as a human being ended about 15 years ago. So the less he's, it, the less things he's in, the better. I don't care if he was Mad Max for three movies in the late 70s and early 80s. Tom Hardy nails it, does a great job. Charlize Theron is perfect. Um, this movie is just a perfect action movie and it's, so much more than an action movie. Mad Max is the fucking bomb shit diggity dope, yo. I want to watch this movie all the time, but then I want to watch all the other Mad Max movies, and, and Kate wouldn't like that too much. She doesn't like the Mad Max movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but she liked the new one, you know? Just like Corey. Corey watched the Mad Max trilogy before going to see Fury Road, and he was like, nah, I'm not feeling these movies. But yeah, Fury Road was pretty good. You know, th this movie, you don't need to see the Mad Max films to appreciate this movie. You don't need nothing. You, this is its own movie. Just watch it. Um, it's really good. And, uh, you know, the stickler inside of me still is like, nah, The Road Warrior is the best that Mad Max movie. But, you know, Fury Road is probably better than Road Warrior. It's a hard concession to make, but it's just really that good. There you go. Wow. Mag Max, Fury Road, number two. Kyle, what's your number one? On the home stretch. <laughs> yeah, thanks. And, uh, I'll be over here trying to come up with a number one now. Oh, come on. Right, you, you can keep going with the Mad Max excitement. Put me on the spot right now, oh. Kyle. Number one. I'm excited. Starting off. Oh, what's my your God. One, you're cruel. I just had, like, my number one taken from me. It's not taken from you. It's never it's taken. Still yours. Yeah. Well, I can't talk about it now. You could. So. Oh, my. You didn't say anything when I was talking, so we don't even know your thoughts and feelings on it. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm like the silent killer. <laughs> what? No. I don't know. I don't know. I just, sometimes words just come out of here. You know, you know what I'm saying, right, Corey? Just ignore what I say, and that's pretty much the best advice anybody could have. All right. I'll let you have anything where Kyle says words. Yeah, so just skip me, because I have no idea what number one is. Yeah, you do. Like, you know. But yeah. I think it obviously. M. Yeah, it's Fury Road, obviously. Number one, Fury Road. I don't know, like, my, my, it's complicated, but I don't want to talk about it now, because... You know, I, I, I'm just going to add one thing, though, to what Chris said, is that I, I'm, for one, like, I think Tom Hardy did a good job. I would have preferred to see Mel Gibson. <sighs> I like Tom Hardy better. No. <laughs> That's all. But I don't think Tom Hardy really added a lot to the role. I think it would, that role would have been much better if we'd had all the the history and the time spent with Mel Gibson. But Hardy didn't do anything necessarily wrong. But, you know, he's just, he's not as much of a max. Hardy did everything necessarily right. And it, it's like, you know, if you, if you wanted anti Semitism in your like bad ass, Kyle. 
Guys, like, I don't, I don't care. Like, I, I'm, like, he's an anti-Semite. Like, he's an anti-Semite. Like, I get that. But it doesn't mean that, like, he can't still be in films and stuff. Like, we, we deal with Tom Cruise, and he's like a crazy Scientologist guy. And tons of Japanese creators are like, you know, World War II, like, oh, right, rape of Nanking didn't happen. If we hated everybody who did something offensive, then, like, there'd be no one left to like. So I know, it's like, I'm picking. I just, I, I don't care for, I don't think Mel Gibson has done good film work in at least the last 15 years as well. He should have been, like, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure if he would have, because he's, like, notorious, like, you know, like, he has, like, personality issues, but he's, like, I, you know, like, I don't think he could play second fiddle to Furiosa, but if, because, you know, like, like you said, it, this it really is Charlie's Theron's film, but if anybody could have gotten him to do it, it would have been George Miller. And if George Miller could have done that, then it would have been something incredible to see. The could have been's and the would have been's, I'm happy with what we got. I'm happy with what we got too, but I, 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 it could have been better. That's the only way could I could. Could it have? <laughs> what, what, Tori? I mean, no guarantee. <laughs> so, Kyle, what was your number one? Mad Max, Fury Road. Don't say so dejectedly. You're excited about this. This is the best movie of 2015 <laughs> in Kyle's brain. <laughs> I'll die historic on the Fury Road. <laughs> it's okay, Kyle. You'll live again. I'm just fine, guys. <laughs> you live, you die, you live again. Go on to Valhalla. It's okay, bud. Yes. Everything is shiny and chrome. On Kyle's end. So that's my number one. That's, that's what I have. Magnets. Yeah. Fury Road. All over the place. The movie's that good, yo. It is nowhere near my list. <laughs> Stone Cold, Corey. Yeah, I know. Uh, you know, we all do. I probably put it above Ex Machina. Burn. Damn. Alright, so who else is uh, number one right. we're gonna hear? Alright, moving on. Chris, number one. Oh, man, so fast. Jeez. Well, my number one was already spoken about as well, but I don't care because it is the best movie of the year, in my opinion, and it's blasphemy to speak otherwise. Inside Out. Um, <laughs> Corey was talking about Inside Out, and that's why I wasn't saying anything because I just wanted to, to save it. I love this movie so unconditionally, and it is it was the best animated film of the year. This is not a case of Disney and Pixar getting preferential treatment, which of course they do, and it is a crime that they do, but Inside Out totally deserves any and all praise it, it, it gets. Um, everything that Corey said is entirely true, but what the film does that it works so well and left such a huge impression on me is it's basically Psychology 202, <laughs> presented inside of a kid's film. Um, the, the way that they use the anthropomorphized emotions inside of Riley's head, it, it's not just cute characters taking, you know, the story and, and, and being with it. There's actually lots of deep psychology broken into that. Um, I, I, I am a military brat, so 
throughout my entire life, I was always being moved around from place to place because of my dad being in the military. So the, the feelings that Riley is going through, when it shows you the actual human characters, you're, you're seeing a girl who is behaving irrationally. It doesn't really give you any of this, you know, deep context. It, it just shows you very surface level. Wow, she's kind of turning into a brat. Look, look at the way she's behaving, you know. And, and from like an adult perspective watching this movie, all you can think of is, man, this, this is a terrible fucking child. But what, what this girl is dealing with is not trivial. It's, it's extreme. This, this girl's world has been torn apart. And that, that is illustrated through the, the characters that are her emotions. Um, there was one scene in the movie where she is at dinner with her, uh, family, uh, her mom and her dad. And she's just, she's not talking. She's being kind of snotty. Um, and, and the parents, you can see the parents getting, you know, agitated. The mom is a little more worried, a little more concerned, and the dad is starting to get a little more angry. And then, you know, it's flashing in her brain. And what is going on in her brain? In her brain, with joy and sadness, the two main characters off on their adventure and their quest, fear and disgust are at the control panels of this girl. Um, it, it's presented in a very wacky and a very silly kind of manner where they're, they're tripping over the controls and they don't know what to do. Um, but that is, that is a real depiction of the emotions that Riley is going through. It's a mixture of fear and disgust. Um, and, and when you're dealing with those kinds of emotions, you can't, you can't really articulate to others how you're feeling. And, and that's reflected in the actual depiction of Riley. She's not being able to talk about her feelings because she doesn't understand them. And it is fuel, fueled by fear and disgust. Um, and then anger comes in and is like, you guys are fucking up the program. And he pushes fear and disgust out of the way. And anger tries to fix the controls. And, it has Riley explode at her dad and scream and yell at him about how he's ruined her life and she goes storming up the stairs. It, 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 it uses its gimmick because, I mean, let's face it, that is a gimmick um, by having the emotions be anthropomorphized characters. But it allowed the filmmakers to talk so deeply on emotions and the film itself also is a huge proponent for understanding depression. Um, it's an incredibly important movie for people who don't suffer depression. Um, you know, I don't, but I understand sadness very well. Um, but other people I know do suffer depression and this film helps you understand those emotions. Um, the, the impetus of the movie is the character's sadness is just kind of wandering around Riley's brain and she accidentally touches a happy memory, a joyful memory, and the memory turns to sadness. Um, and that, and joy is just trying her most, you know, desperately to, how do I fix this? How do I make it go back to being a happy memory? Well, Riley's world was destroyed by this move, so her joyful memories are now sad memories. They, the things that used to be happy in this girl's life are now 
a weapon against her in her own mind. And, and that is, it, it's, it's the most profound feeling. And it's, it's a kid's cartoon. It's a happy, fun kid's cartoon and children can love it. And children can watch up, watch it as they grow up repeatedly and have it mean different things to them. I was crying in the movie, movie theater for literally maybe 95% of the film. Even, even the most smallest incidental details impacted me. Um, Corey was talking about, uh, Bing Bong earlier, um, in their journey through, um, Riley's long-term memory, they encounter her child or her, her childhood imaginary friend from when she was a child, uh, a toddler, because she's only like 10 or 11 years old in the film. Um, and, and, and Bing Bong kind of goes along with them on their journey and they fall into the pit of forgotten memories, you know, because the, the mechanics, like Corey mentioned, the mechanics are tremendous. It, it really helps articulate, you know, how the inner mind works. You're like, okay, so I have long-term memory. Sometimes I forget memories, even if they were short-term or long-term. I have my imagination. I have all these different components, um, the, these pieces that build me up, that make that make me a human being, that different from everybody else. And in, in the film, that's represented as different islands um, that get built um, joy and bing bong fall into the pit of forgotten memories. Um, that's where they find, uh, bing bong's, uh, little cart that is powered by music that Corey was talking about earlier. And, and they use, and they use this cart to propel themselves up out of the pit. And it, it, it's a, it's a very incidental sequence in the film. It's okay. Joy is now stuck in this pit. She can't, get out and continue on her quest to try to rebuild um, Riley's joy. Because while, while joy and sadness are on this journey through Riley's mind, um, fear, disgust, and anger is literally destroying who she is. Um, her islands are falling apart and deteriorating. Um, the, everything is just breaking down inside of Riley. And so there's this urgency for joy to get back. And so this whole sequence is just this incidental thing but what's happening is they Bing Bong and Joy get into the cart and they're singing the song, the, the Bing Bong song. It's just this ridiculous thing that Riley used to sing when she was a child. And they use it to power the cart up out of the pit. Um, they make a couple attempts at this and they cannot, uh, they can't quite make it. So on the final attempt, when they go to sing the song, Bing Bong chooses to not be in the cart. Um, and it, it, it makes the cart light enough to where joy can get out. It's an incidental sequence, but now Bing Bong, her imaginary friend from her childhood, is stuck into the pit of forgotten memories. Literally, Riley sacrificed her in her childhood innocence for her joy. <laughs> You're gonna be all right, Chris. <laughs> This and there's so many parallels, you know. I, I don't know, you know, if many other people that watch the movie would have it impact them uh, the way that it did me. But uh, you know, so many parallels between my own childhood are, are represented in this film through the use of the anthropomorphized emotions, and it makes so much sense. And at the end of the film. 
you know, there, there's lessons learned about how sadness can be a part of your joy, how sad moments lead to happiness. And now, now all of Riley's memories are, are no longer black and white. It's not a memory of joy or sadness. Um, they change colors and it becomes a representation of all the different emotions, uh, that can make up, um, a person's feelings, their memories, their experiences. And only when Riley's emotions, when, when, when Riley's brain is able to, to come to terms with this, it's a part of growing up. This child is basically on the verge of puberty. It's a, a coming of age story. It's, it's a, everything. Then, then she, only then she's able to rebuild the islands of her personality. Um, none of us are the same person that we were when we were children. Um, none of us are the same people that we were when we were, we were teenagers. Everything is constantly changing. And the way this film is able to visually represent that while also still telling a mature, thoughtful story is absolutely one of the greatest gifts that, that we could get, you know, as people, you know, people that like to watch movies. Inside Out is a fucking gift. Um, and, you know, it, it may be, you know, just hitting me a lot harder than it would some other people because I had a very similar experience, you know, I've never been diagnosed with clinical depression, but I've had extraordinarily uh, sad times. And this movie represents and illustrates all of those complex feelings and emotionally, honestly, um, just like when I was talking about the gift, how it doesn't half-ass its story. It doesn't half-ass the way that it is telling the the theme that it's it's trying to tell it's it's extraordinarily well done and on point throughout the entire thing and and it's just and it's built as a kids film um just like the best of pixar you know this is right up there with wally and up for me um it's probably i probably like it more than up and don't know about wally uh but but everything in this movie, no matter how incidental it is on a basic narrative level, has some kind of deeper meaning um, that just it. I, I applaud everything about this movie, and this this is something extraordinarily special for me. I'm 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 done. Wow, Inside Out is very good. I'm not going to talk about Inside Out after what we just heard, for other reasons. Chris I'm nailed gonna, it. I was going to tell you that I did not like it at all, but hey, I, I'm not going to. I'm not going to wait on the parade. And that's okay. You can like or not like whatever you feel like. Absolutely. I respect it, Chris. I respect it. Thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, all right, number one, Inside Out. Uh, Corey, you're number one. All right. This is another movie based on a book. Books uh, are cool. I like books. Yeah, I should read books more. So my number one is Carol. 
I have heard that is really good. It's very good. Um, it is based on a book by Patricia Highsmith. The book was originally called The Price of Salt. Now it's called Carol, I guess. Uh, Patricia Highsmith did, um, the, the, uh, Talented Mr. Ripley. Oh, I did not like that movie at all. <laughs> but I never That's read the books. No, that, that was the Matt Damon, Jude Law serial killer movie. It was originally filmed in the 50s as a Purple Noon Criterion release that I haven't checked that out yet, but The Talented Mr. Ripley was a, a remake based off the same novel from the late 90s. Oh, yeah, I, I, okay. I see the cover now. I, I know what we're talking about. Yeah, so, um, so when she wrote, so I read the book after I watched the movie. So I'll talk a little bit about both, I guess. Um, talk about the movie first. Uh, so the movie, uh, had, it's starring Kate Blanchett, Rooney Mara, and, uh, Kate Blanchett is the titular Carol, and Rooney Mara plays, uh, Therese Bellavet. So, the movie takes place in the 50s, and the book was written in the 50s as well, and it's basically about a, um, it's like a blossoming lesbian romance. And with the book, like, the book was like one of the first things where, uh, it was a lesbian, uh, romance that didn't end in suicide or like conversion or death or bad stuff. Like the book has a happy ending. Um, and that like this story in the fifties to me is just that's, that's ridiculous. Cause like, because today watching this movie, I feel like even though it's set in the 50s and even when I was reading the book, like it doesn't feel out of time. Like it feels like like the perfect time for this because it fits into like discussions we're having today about same sex relationships. And the story just it does a really good job with that. Um, so Therese, the main character... Uh, I think she's like 17 or 18 and, uh, she's working at uh, a department store called Frankenberg's. It's like a chance moment. Um, Carol comes in and she's looking for a Christmas present for her daughter. Um, and like, they just like, it's like a flash of lightning. They just like connect. And Therese doesn't really understand, um, because she's lived, um, like she's become someone that says like yes all the time. Someone that just like goes with the flow. Uh, she just does what's done and like, okay, I'm gonna, meet this guy and then I guess we'll get married and like whatever. And even though I don't like him, like this is just, I'm just doing 
you know, like she doesn't do anything for herself. And so over the course of the movie, you know, her relationship with Carol uh, develops and deepens. Um, and Therese is learning things about herself. Um, like, because, like, she doesn't even, like, know, like, like, it's not like... It's not like a like man or woman kind of thing. It was just like it's just Carol, and she just also happens to be a woman. Um, and the so um, there's like a, there's a moment in the film where Therese is talking to Richard, her boyfriend, and she asks him if he's ever liked a guy before. And Richard's just like, what? What are you talking about? Like, are you okay? Like, why? Like, why would I ever like another guy? Like, that doesn't make sense. Um, and I, I feel like that moment in the movie is just like, you could like just pull that out and like put that in like real life. Um, you know, because they're, they're like so, like Richard's like so, like diametrically opposed. Like what, like why that should not be or whatever. Um, so yeah, so I, I want to talk about the ending. It's not really like you already Go know. Go right ahead. Go right ahead. I'm going to talk about it. <laughs> so, so over the, you know, like. Therese doesn't ever really talk about herself, like when she's with Carol. Um, and in the movie, um, Therese's like interest is like with photography. And then the book, it's, um, I guess you could say it's like she wants to be a stage designer in the book. Um, but she's like, like she's good at those things, but she's not pursuing them. Um, and through her relationship with Carol, she like learns, you know, things about herself and Carol pushes her to do the photography. And, but, you know, then there's, um, there's Carol's side. Carol's in, uh, in the middle of a divorce with her husband and she has a daughter. Uh, and she's trying to get um, at least joint custody of her daughter. But because she's had relationships with women, she's psychologically unstable. That's or that's what the lawyers and the attorneys say. Oh, she likes women. That's not right. Um, and it all builds up to this moment where... Carol and Therese like go their separate ways uh, because Therese she feels betrayed by Carol um, but Therese reframes it and um, and makes it no longer just about herself and makes it about them both and at the end um the the movie starts with the ending and then it cuts it off at some point and then goes backwards 
um, to the beginning. Uh, but at the at the end, they're having dinner, and Carol wants to make amends. And this is the and this is the first time Therese says no, which is huge. And and Therese goes off to this party she was going to go to instead of going off with Carol. And at the party, she realizes like, no, this isn't this isn't it. Like I could have said yes at that point, and so she goes to the the restaurant where Carol is, and she just walks up like near the table and Carol looks up and just smiles and then that's the end of the movie and uh it's it's amazing. It's really good. Uh, Indeed. And I just I just No, I haven't. But I, I did just realize when you when you said the I don't know if you said the name of the woman who wrote the novel, but I just it just clicked in my brain. She also did uh, Strangers on a Train, yeah, which is a really good, good book and a really great Hitchcock film. <sighs> so the uh, the book for Carol is interesting. Like it's a good complement to the movie because the movie provides Carol and Therese's perspective, but the book is entirely from Therese's perspective. Um, mm. So it gets into a lot of, you know, by nature of it being a book. It, it gets into a lot of deeper things with Therese and like with Richard, they're like two sides of the same coin. Like it's just, they're both fantastic. I recommend both. <laughs> I just, cool. I just ordered, um, Carol on Blu-ray. It has a really amazing look and maybe it's because I just read it was shot on super 16 millimeter, but it just, it's it is fucking noisy. Like it looks really noisy, and I love it. Oh, looks so good. Really interesting. Now, I've, I've I've also I've never seen a Todd Haynes film either. So that'll be interesting. So I have I have no idea what to expect from any aspect of this. You'll expect things good. And that that w- that is what I would expect based <laughs> off of. Uh, General consensus of what I've uh, read, and also Corey just now, of course. Kyle, you not seen Carol? No, I have not. Okay. Just making sure you have nothing else to add. Fair enough. All right, uh, number one, Carol. Last up, last up. All right. You're, the excitement is high, Corey. <laughs> uh, my number one, which at the last minute you served inside out as number one. Is dope. Dope. I've heard of this movie. Is this the one I'm thinking of? It's, uh, it's about these three black gigs from Eaglewood, California, I think. Um, they're in a, a poor neighborhood of California, and the uh, the main character Malcolm is extremely smart. Um, he hopes to go to Harvard, but he doesn't really have a way in besides scholarships and recommendations because he doesn't have the money to and the school that he is going to would probably be looked down upon by uh, the Harvard Acceptance Board or whatever. But you know, through, a various, through various circumstances, he ends up with uh, a lot of money in drugs because he goes to or he runs into this kid 
that um, that is a drug dealer and he goes to his party. The kid puts drugs into Malcolm's bag and he goes to get the drugs out of the party and he leaves the party with the drugs. And he is basically told, well, start start a business, sell sell this these drugs for me and impress me if you want my Harvard recommendation. Um, so he does just that, but the film is about this uh, this kid trying to fight up from what the place that he's living is literally called the Bottoms to Harvard, and it's kind of very indicative of how um, the world is right now. When you're poor, you can't uh, you can't do anything. You're you have to be born privileged or get lucky. And that's, like, as uh, as prescient as Selma was on race issues last year, dope is just as much, if not more. Sounds dope. It is dope. <laughs> <laughs> is it diggity dope, yo? Yes. Uh, nice. The last line of the film kind of brings it home, but I don't want to spoil it. It's 52% off on Amazon. Can you buy it? <laughs> It's also on Netflix. That's where I watch it. It's dope. That's good to know. I haven't seen it yet, so I might watch it later this week. It is freaking fantastic. Oh, and the kid, this is set in modern day, but the kid is super into uh, 80s and 90s rap, and he even dresses like it. Like, he's got the flat top and these ridiculous... Aw, shit. Why don't you you lead with this? Lead with this. That's a selling point. (laughs) It's got a real the t- the logo has a real good font. Yeah, uh, like on the soundtrack. I don't know any of these people, but other people might. Diggable planets. Ariel. Nas. Public Enemy. I know of them. I think. I know Nas. Digital Underground. Uh, he loves all that, um, all that eighties and nineties hip hop. Oh, and they have, like, uh, like Hateful Eight, they have a conversation about... Aw, oh, shit, Busta Rhymes, woo got you all in check, fuck yeah, that's it, no, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Chris. <laughs> I just looked up the soundtrack, <laughs> sorry. Um, yeah, just like Hateful Eight, they have a serious discussion on the usage of the N-word, um... And there's this pasty white kid who keeps insisting that he's he can use it because he doesn't mean it like it's a bad thing. He means it like bro or dude or whatever. He's like, no, you can't. That's not how it works. You can't say that. And it's very funny, very uh, very real to real to life. Woo-ha! Got all these real issues in our movies. This was a this was a year. They, they they movies this year were were talking about some stuff, man. They were breaking it down. I mean, like dope, uh, dope, train wreck, inside out, spy, big short. There's a lot of uh, minority issues. Just well, no one else is seeing dope, right? No, 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 no man. Shit. Sorry. Uh, well, that <laughs> rounds out the list. Any. Uh, 
Anything we are missing that you would like to make a quick mention of? Like the Love Live School Idol Festival movie? <laughs> I would actually like to mention The Final Girls, just because that movie is awesome. <laughs> no, for real, though, The Final Girls. It was it was like my like closest almost ran. Had it right behind Lost River. It's a, a parody and a satire of uh, slasher films by having a bunch of kids they're watching a slasher film that stars one of the kids mom and they get sucked into the movie so they're stuck inside of this very stereotypical 80s slasher uh camp film um and it's great it plays on all the tropes perfectly it's hilarious a lot of people were disdaining it because it's rated pg-13 you can't do a parody of a p you know of an r-rated violent slasher film and have it be pg-13 it misses the point blah 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 no they do and it works just fine it it's not as violent or whatever as the old slasher films but it's still got all the good stuff and it's very funny it's very good and Man, they nail the uh, mother-daughter relationship, and it brings it home. That that movie is tremendously good. Absolutely. The Final Girls. Shout out, bitches. And, they, and be sure be sure you're looking for The Final Girls, because there was another movie last year that came out that was just called Final Girl, starring Abigail Breslin, and I haven't seen that yet, but from everything I understand, you might not want to either. Um <laughs> <laughs> Just be sure, be sure you're looking for the right final girl. Yes, like, don't look for the room. Look for room. Room. There is no the. Yeah. Even when they're talking about it in the movie, it's just room. Uh, Kyle, any mentions? You guys should all watch Soderbergh. Uh, it's not his, technically, but Soderbergh's. He did the first one, and he did the use the direct DP, I think, on this one. But he did Magic Mike XXL. Awesome. One of these days, I'll get around to watching those. Yeah, I haven't watched either. You can't go wrong. It's funny because it's like weird because he didn't direct the second one, but it feels pretty much exactly like the first one except better. Because it's it's a Soderbergh film. We're talking about the first one, and the second one's better, and he's a great director. So everyone should watch that. It's just a lot of fun. I mean, you should watch anything with Channing Tatum. You really should. So be sure to go out and watch a, a movie that we spoke about on this podcast but didn't mention his name on. You're going to have to watch them all to find out which one. Also, go watch Hail Caesar. That's oh, twenty sixteen. Yeah, yeah, we'll be talking yeah. about that next year. 2016. I already have a list for 2016. <laughs> I have a list of one movie, and it's probably still going to be on there when we do this next year. <laughs> Uh, See, I, I already know what number one's going to be for 2016. Full spoiler, I'm not going to say it here, but it came out on the first day of 2016. And I was so sad because I was going to say it number one today, but 20, it's the first day of 2016 it, it premiered in America. So, like, done. <laughs> it's already number one. Uh, I can't imagine a film beating it. But yeah. Corey also rants. Uh, I don't know. I... Spectre would have never made the list, but I heard Spectre was garbage. And <laughs> they were wrong. I rented it because uh, I had a credit at Redbox. I was like, ah, whatever, it's it's free. Uh, nah, it was like the villain, uh, Christoph Waltz is the villain, which should be a sign of greatness, but he's actually not used very well. So the 
the villains not done very well, but the rest of the movie is great. It's it's probably my favorite Daniel Craig Bond next to Royale. Okay, Cena Royale is the the best. Cena Royale is awesome. But Spectre's is real good. Uh, Skyfall is better than Spectre. I think season Casino Royale is also better than Spectre, but Spectre is real good. We noted. All right. Uh, missing from my list, Jupiter Ascending, the Wachowskis being the Wachowskis, which is uh, putting their enthusiasm about movies on their sleeve and making it into a movie, and it's fantastic. <laughs> uh, also, Trainwreck, which is really funny, and Amy Schumer is the greatest... Uh, train wreck. So, Kristen Wig is also in there, isn't she? What? I still need to see a Jupiter ascending. Yeah, who's her? Brie oh. Larson is in. Train oh wreck. yes, that's what I'm thinking of. Brie Larson. Same thing. Uh, John Cena. No, what? No. John Cena for best supporting actor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, Cena was. Surprisingly amazing. Yes. <laughs> I got another shout out. This is way down on my list, but you know what? Everybody should see it. Turbo Kid. Oh yeah. Turbo Kid. It's a Canadian movie that is just a huge pastiche to eighties films, and they nail the tone harder than than anything. Like your next, the guest, all these other movies, you know, even it follows like they nail the the look and feel of an '80s film so hard. Um, it is extremely violent, and along the way, they actually made an extremely good movie on accident. Um, so, like halfway through the movie, when it becomes an extremely good film, they're still keeping up with the ridiculous cartoon violence, a la Hobo with a Shotgun. It totally kind of kills the film. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, they accidentally made a really good movie. And if you you like '80s movies or you like the '80s aesthetic, fucking Turbo Kid, and uh, Apple is the best. Apple is. is, is the secondary character, and she's probably one of the best characters of the year. Apple is the best. Straight up. I've got my collector's edition Blu-ray in the mail just like a week or two ago too. <laughs> it, it was it was it's a it's a it's a feature film. Ver- it was originally a short film that was um, the the filmmakers tried to get it into the ABCs of Death uh, anthology, and it didn't quite make the cut. Um, but then they got the funding and then they turned the short into a, a feature length film. But yeah, it, along, it, they, they accidentally made a really good movie. They, they were going for just, they, they were going for just this really, you know, 80s nostalgia, you know, post-apocalyptic, um, violent, silly. They, they were going for all these things that a lot of people don't like about some of the more modern retro films. But that's that's all they were going for was just to have something that was fun and had all of their, you know, love and influence just kind of filtered in there. And they accidentally made a really good movie and they fucked it up by still making it silly with the violence, um, which is a shame. Uh, but yeah. Fuck yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. The Martian. Martian's real good. I never watched that. 
What? Well, I saw Interstellar and I laughed too. I Martian laughed too hard. is way better than I laughed too hard at the fact that <laughs> Matt Damon is again someone, someone trapped in a in a planet and cannot get back. <laughs> I'm a Matthew McConaughey fan, but nope, Martian's better, way Just better. Still wasn't that good. <laughs> that that's part. <laughs> Gauntlet thrown. Kyle is raging. I bet. Probably. What am I raging about? <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, I, I liked Inception, but you know, like it's not like my favorite. Yeah, what? What? <laughs> I know. That's what I'm saying. Interstellar. You know. Sorry. You say Inception. Sorry, I meant Inception. Inception is my favorite. Interstellar is not my favorite at all. That's what I was trying to say. How do you feel sense. about The Martian? I like The Martian, but it was a bit too much Apollo 13, and it should have been more Robinson Crusoe on Mars, and then that ending is, like, garbage. That should be thrown out. What? There's, like, a whole epilogue thing, and it's 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 terrible. Like, it should have oh. ended right right when they picked him up, and then it should have been done. No. They, like, had this whole thing where they're like, let's show what everyone's doing now. Huh, let's, let's see what everyone's doing. Uh, look, he's teaching at the school. Isn't that great? <laughs> look! Oh, he's looking at it. He's his first day back on Earth. Look, he's teaching some kids. And look, oh, this person's drinking a cup of coffee. That's fantastic. They exist still. That's great. It's like, turn that shit off. I walked out, and I never do that. I watch out at the end. like the epilogue started happening, and usually I sit through the credits, but I was like, what is this? And I liked the movie up until then, and that, that was like, I hate it when, when filmmakers do that wow. stuff. I hate no that. No way. It's like, good film, but yes, skip that ending. No way. (laughs) Yes, the vitriol. We were missing this. Let it out. Let the anger seethe. It gives me life. (laughs) I'm like a really angry watcher a lot of times. No one talked about the Revenant. Sorry. Because, oh, God, I'm raging about that, although for different reasons. I was watching the Revenant, Chris, and the people in my theater... They, there was a couple like sitting next to me, and this is an assigned theating, seating theater. And they started pulling out their phones. They actually took phone calls in the film. They were texting. Oh, they had like, they had a fight. They had a fight in the theater next to me. I tried <laughs> I tried telling management, and they were just like, "Sorry, nothing we can do." What? <laughs> this actually happened. You guys didn't hear about I this? I did, but I still don't believe it. I don't. It I didn't, actually I, happens. I don't think you actually went into detail on it, though. That's and ridiculous. I, I, I didn't tell anybody on Twitter. I just told like Corey and like Tony and them. But yeah, I was I was so angry. Like I think I did one tweet. It was it was unbelievable what I had to go through, and I couldn't even focus on the movie the whole time. I was just in, like a rage, for, like <laughs> essentially like two hours, and I've never and I'm I'm never going back to that theater again. They're the worst. I can't do anything about it. Oh, yeah, I've been to plenty of theaters. You can kick them out. Who cares? Who wants their money? They're going to talk in a movie. God, get I hate them. Back. No, I, they won't even do it. I'm like, because uh, it had just started, and they were having a talk. And I'm like, you won't do anything about crime? They're like, sorry, policies, we don't give money back. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You're not going to do anything about these people who are ruining the movie, and are not going to give me my money back? Policies. I'm never going back. <laughs> the thing is, that's the closest movie theater to me. It's 20 minutes away. The next closest movie theater, I have to drive for an hour. What? Yeah. It's like fucking bullshit. That's the worst. The closest theater to me is like 20 minutes away. 
Yeah. Like, I love you guys, but I hate you right now. Like, <laughs> harsh. Like, just like, I'm sorry, but like five minutes away, it's like dream material. They're probably nice theaters too. So oh. angry. <laughs> I have to drive for like an hour and a half. To, like, that one that's an hour away isn't even a good theater. I have to drive for like an hour and a half each way to get to like a, a good theater. One that like I actually like. Sorry. Yeah, nice. I have a lot of rage. So yeah, anyways, I bet The Revenant's good. I, I can't tell you because my experience with Revenant is like so artificially like, what the... <laughs> that I should buy. Who knows, man? It could have been really good. I don't even know. I don't it was all right. To, I don't trust my opinion on it because I wasn't able to focus. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you the best movie I saw in the theaters last year. John Carpenter's The Thing. <laughs> Yeah. I'm actually going to be seeing the, all the Ghibli films. Uh, this uh, they had, they're doing a Ghibli like a thon in a theater up in uh, DC. So I'm probably going to drive up. Uh, like, well, they, I don't know when they're like they're doing specific movies on specific dates. I'm probably going to go see the Alamo um, Drafthouse. Not Alamo. It's uh, like it's called E Cinema. It's like a landmark theater, apparently. Okay, I was about to say because you missed the boat because Alamo did their uh, the Drafthouse did their Ghibli retrospective last month. <laughs> Sorry, wires it's were okay. crossed. Yeah, no, uh, I've seen them. I've seen a lot of them on like 35 millimeter at the AFI Silver, but they have uh, only yesterday showing. Yeah. Because it's the first time it's ever shown in America. Like they have the new one, sub and dub. It's actually showing, and that's why they're doing this, I guess. But they also have some of like like when Marnie was there and that kind of stuff, and that's brand new for uh because when I saw the AFI Silver like thing they hadn't yet started uh, those movies weren't done yet they had just they hadn't even finished at the time uh the uh kavia that wasn't even done at the time when i saw those in theater so yeah all right movies they're good and cool yeah sorry you should cut off the podcast like five (laughs) minutes uh, we were just like randomly chatting close this thing off uh where can we find you guys on the internet chris i am on twitter Still with an account at Gokufi. Um, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know if you'll be able to talk to me there or not. But you know, I still have an account. <laughs> Kyle, I am also on Twitter. I am at a new type century, and that's pretty much where you find me. I'm not the most active, but if you, I'm definitely there. I'm, I, I'm there all the time. What am I saying? I'm very active. Get off my back. Wow. I'm in an angry mood, but I'm still happy. <laughs> need to chill, Kyle. You just need to relax. Watch a movie. You sound like you just like. Have you been smoking something, Corey? No. You sound like really relaxed. Like maybe. <laughs> like maybe a bit artificially relaxed. Like, you, do you have some Zoloft riding from us? No. Catnip, buddy. That's all you need. All right. I am on Twitter. I'm not on the internet. You were the artist formerly known as Cyborg Pop. I'm not on the internet. <laughs> I got tired of the internet. You are missed. I'm on Twitter. I'm passionate K. Podcast on Twitter. Taiku Podcast. D-A-I-I-K-U. Uh, TaikuPodcast.tumblr.com and TaikuPodcast.com. Go listen to the latest episodes. Thank you guys for coming talking for almost four hours. Jesus. How about movies? I've never been on a podcast that shorter. (laughs) (laughs) Love you guys. Yay.
You're welcome. Thank you, Corey, as always. And at the same time? Yeah. You don't? That's the only way you do it, isn't it? Oh, uh, yeah, that's how I do it. (laughs) Efficiency, dude. You gotta be efficient. See the way them rooms is fit in dreams And my money, mommy can't take it from me, mommy, sorry I'll do it 